Welcome to episode 157 with my guest, Nandi La Sofia. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code PAUL. I am Paul Gilmartin. Oh, that was so cheesy. Oh, my God. I I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is I like in, there was a flash in my brain like, oh, this would be a great way to say <laughs> segue that. Oh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Uh, two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. That should be quite clear by now. Uh, it's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go check it out. Take a survey. See how other people filled out surveys. Um, read a blog. Join the forum. Um, a lot of people really connecting quite deeply on the on the forum. It's a beautiful thing to witness. You can also share your fears and loves there. I've got a gazillion different topics that you can post under. And um, you can also support the show financially by going to the uh, the website. Um, what did I want to say? All right, let's do this. Let's write. I want to kick it off with a, uh, a... Oh, first of all, before that... Uh, I've decided that I'm going to uh, start highlighting the upcoming episodes, uh, moments of perfectionist angst, because every, almost every episode that I put, put up, there's something that I don't edit out that I kind of wish I had because it doesn't make me look good. And uh, I've decided as for my own personal growth to start leaving those things in there and to learn how to be comfortable with mistakes. Um, and th the two things in this week's uh, one, or the one thing I guess it is, is, um, well, one, that moment I just had five seconds ago, not explaining that well. And um, the other thing is, at the end of this episode, uh, Nandi and I do a fear and love off, and the loves that I read, either the fears or the loves, I can't remember which one it is, I think that I've, not only do I think that I've read them before, somebody's fears and loves, but I think I made the same comment that I did when I read them before. Uh, uh, just a note about, well, you'll hear, those of you that are regular listeners, you're here. So I, I decided to leave it in there because I didn't want to edit out uh, Nandi's uh, fears and loves because uh, I liked them. All right. This is an email I got from a listener, listener named Jeremy. And he writes, uh, because he knows that I like to get feedback sometimes from people who have um, decided to listen to my badgering and uh, check out a support group. And he writes, um, so I attended a support group for people with depression and bipolar disorder. During the session, I didn't really feel like it was a good fit for me. People were texting on their phones while other people were sharing their details. And about half the people left during the break. The moderator kept interrupting and injecting her own story into everyone else's. I'm not giving up on support groups. I just need to find one I feel most comfortable with. And I highly recommend I would have left that uh, support group. Um, that, you know, there are there are support groups and then there are meetings within that support group. And the support group 
Support groups themselves are great, but individual meetings really depend on the people that populate them. So don't judge the support group by the particular meeting. And uh, I have a real problem with people that text on their phones during um, during meetings because I, I just think it's fucking rude. Because if you're somebody that, let's say it's their first time at a support group and they're pouring their guts out and you look up and somebody's got their head buried in their phone. I mean, what does that say? Uh, uh, about that about that group so um, a lot of the support groups I go to there's uh, um, you know they say please don't text uh, please don't do this and that and and it's not a problem so uh, yeah I would look for another uh, another meeting of that support group um, but don't give up on support groups wanted to read a couple of struggle in the sentences this one was filled out by Andy and uh, about his anxiety, he writes, everyone I meet is assessing me. Sooner or later, they will figure out I'm stupid, awkward, and boring. Um, this is fil- filled out by a guy who calls himself Jimmy Stewart. Uh, about his bulimia, he says, I can't help but feel emasculated and defeated every time I make myself throw up after binge eating. It's such an amazing release in the moment, but leaves me with a horrific emotional hangover. About his sex addiction, Do whatever it takes to keep her close enough for emotional sexual comfort, even if it means lying. Ultimately, having to live in my own head at the end of the day is awful. No amount of self-deception can comfort the fact that I am emotionally, I'm an, I am an emotionally manipulative piece of shit. Uh, This was filled out by a guy. The dudes chiming in on the uh, the uh, struggle in a sentence survey. This guy calls himself the lost one and about his OCD. Numbers, rituals, rules, and barriers. My OCD has created a world of perfection that I will never be good enough to fit in. And about uh, living with Tourette's, he writes, You have beaten me and taken control of my body. No matter how much I try, I know that I will never have control. I am the puppet, and you, Tourette's, are the puppet master. Sending you a hug. Um... You guys should know by now that anybody's survey that I read, I am sending them a hug. I sometimes worry that I sound like a broken record, but um, I just feel so much. Um, I'm so moved by these these um, surveys that I read, and you know, even if somebody has done something that that I don't agree with or I don't um, that I think is morally reprehensible. Um, I think it makes life so much easier to try to see the the hurt person that's inside there. You know, we can, what is it that the, they say? You can hate the sin, love the sinner. Got to get that on a belt buckle. <laughs> this one is uh, from the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself FC and about her uh, borderline personality disorder. She writes, one minute I'm going along fine. Next minute the lights go out. Blackness, nothingness. I am detached and nothing exists. Just the residue of deep, deep despair. It's disgusting and painful. And speaking of disgusting and painful, how's that? That was actually not a bad segue for this this story that I have to tell. It's going to sound like I'm exaggerating, but um, I... I guess it would have been the Saturday before the Oscars. He must have been in town for the Oscars, but I'm I'm in my favorite coffee shop and I'm just sitting there chilling, having a nice time. And I'm like, is that Daniel Day-Lewis? And I got up and I kind of 
you know, tried to look without really looking. And I'm like, oh my God, that is. And he finishes ordering and he turns around and he walks right towards me. So I'm like, this is my chance to meet the greatest living actor ever. The greatest actor ever. I think the greatest film actor ever, hands down. And, um, and I'm normally not that uh, starstruck, you know, when I when I see people. I, I get a little excited, but um, I couldn't even find the words. To, I, I, so I came up to him and I was just like, I, 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 can, can I just say? Uh, and and he, his face lit up. He had this big smile and he said, thank you. And then he went, I think. And we both laughed. And I said, I just think you're so amazing. You know, your work is just... Um, it, 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 you know, when I was just stammering, trying to find something to say, and I should have just fucking left it at that, but I couldn't. I, I, I was like that that pathetic person that is like, this is my chance to bond with Daniel Day Lewis, and he was so he was so nice, but I just didn't know when to shut up. <laughs> the first, the first fucking turd that comes out of my mouth, because I I knew that one of his hobbies is. Uh, making shoes, which I just think is so awesome. And I said to him, oh, this is making me sick. And I couldn't wait to tell my wife after I did this because I knew she would laugh at me as hard as I laughed at myself. I said to him, I love that you make shoes. I'm also an artist and I would work. He would have been completely justified and wheeling around and saying, good day, sir, and leaving the coffee shop at that point. But no, he continued to listen to me then talk about how great his performance was in There Will Be Blood, which is, I think, like the Citizen Kane of our of our generation, and his performance is fucking amazing in it. So I said to him, can I just say you're, and I like how I asked him, can I just say, can I just say, um, I said, your performance in There Will Be Blood is the greatest, you know, Ever. Nothing wrong with that, but then I've got to continue. And I said, it was so big. <laughs> Why didn't I just ask him what, what was Gaelic for cartoony? I go, it was so big, but it was real. And at that point, I could see his eyes just starting to glaze over. And I just kind of, I, at that point, I could actually kind of hear what a, what a, fucking douche I had turned myself into and uh, he said goodbye and he got into a car and he left and afterwards I thought you know feigning interest in a jackass might be his most challenging role to date oh god I wish I didn't need to take meds flat out fucking auditory hallucinations I would literally wake up running from my bed I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son I thought the gunman was my father afraid of not being able to make a living um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. I cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got to therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the um, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Nandi La Sofia, uh, who is... Uh, a listener? 
Yes. And you had sent me an email and gave me some broad strokes uh, on your story. One of the things yeah. in your email was you wanted to hear uh, more stories from the uh, LGBT community. Yes. And um, was there anything specifically within the LGBT community that you felt wasn't being addressed? Because I've I, I have had um, a fair amount of guests on. Yeah. Um, from. And I'm going to say it one more time, the LGBT community. <laughs> <laughs> um, were there issues that you felt you would, you would like to give, give voice to that, that you haven't heard? Um, well, embarrassingly, I missed most of those. Mm -hmm. Like I either skimmed over them or just was like, there was nothing in the headliner or, the, or like the subject or whatever to, mm -hmm. to lead me to think like, oh, okay, cool. This is somebody that I can relate to. I right? got you. So when I gave you the list of ones that, that, that I felt fitting in that category, yes. then, then your, uh, your opinion changed. Yeah. Uh, face palm for okay. sure. All the way. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. But you know, I, it sounded to me like, um, your story would be interesting for, for me to hear and for our listeners to hear, so I wanted to uh, to to come give it a whirl, you yeah. Know, to try to record, where would be a good place to start? How old are you? I'm forty. Yeah, and where would be a good place to uh, to start with your your story? And I uh, and I have to just paint a picture uh, for the listeners. Hmm. Um, you have a, you have a tattoo on your neck. Yes. You have uh, two or three piercings in your nose. Three. Altogether. Three piercings in your nose. Yeah. And you have the I don't know what to call them, but the the Stretched, plugs. the stretched yeah. plugs in yeah, yeah. Uh, in your ears. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, when I when I look at you, I think here's a person that um, uh, is independent, who yeah, um, sure. <laughs> likes to likes to say uh, to to the world, you know, here here is um, here is who I am. I'm not a conformist. Yeah, I I think that that is fitting. Although it's kind of um, it's interesting that it, because it's sort of like um, a social transitionary thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, it comes from in my history. It comes from being very young before I could read and seeing pictures of African tribesmen, of seeing pictures of Tutankhamun with the huge holes in the earlobes of the death mask and feeling like, holy shit, that's my people, you know? What was it that, that made you feel that way? Just because they were different or? Um, it was that they were ornate mm. and that they were impeccably beautiful to me. Not necessarily the, like the Bushmen, you know, who have like the lip plates and they also have plugs, a lot of tribes mm. in Africa. Um, it was just something about them. It wasn't that they were different because I didn't know from different when I was a little kid. I see. You know, I think a lot of children before they can read have a really clear um, identity, you know, that's why now, like, a lot of parents are paying attention to transgender children because trans kids are saying, like, oh, no, I'm a girl. Please call me a girl. And parents, like, when I was saying that as a kid, my parents were like, fuck, no, you're not. You know, that's impossible. It doesn't work. You're crazy. You're possessed by the devil or whatever. And did you believe them when they said that and thought that the problem was yours or did you think they just don't know? Uh, I thought a combination of those things. I didn't think that they were correct in saying that to me. I fought it very hard. But I also thought that they just didn't know that it was possible. Do you prefer the pronoun she? Um, not these days. I mean, I lived, I lived as a woman for four years, and I was medically transitioning for one of those years, meaning taking estrogen and spironolactone uh, androgen blockers. Mm. Um, 
But when I was really, really little, it started to come to a head around four years old. And uh, I kind of like came out to my mom, you know, Mm -hmm. and was like, she started asking, what do you want to be when you grow up kind of questions. And a lot of kids say like ballerina or fireman. I was like, a lady, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, "Um, well, that's not possible. And I freaked out and went into this whole like, well, then I don't want to live and was screaming and asked telling her to kill me, you know? which wow. is really intense for like a four-year-old kid to do. Um, but through a lot of years of therapy, we talked about how those words came out of my mouth, you know, because most four-year-olds aren't going to be like, kill me, I want to die. And, and shocking that the, that much, um, I don't know what the word would be for it, um, ability to articulate feelings yeah. as, a, as a kid. I guess we forget how little kids are still people with personalities and feelings and dreams and fears and well i think sometimes it depends on the kids um history because not a lot of kids i think don't have this grand emotional history by the time they're four and by the time i was four i'd been tossed out of a two-story window i'd had lots of surgery was born premature you know my family was already my dad was super abusive alcoholic and all of my earliest memories are of him like raping my mother and beating the shit out of everybody, you know? So I think by the time I'm four, I, I kind of knew like what kill me means. I know what I want to die means because I've heard it so many times. Did he toss you out of a two-story window? Yeah, yeah. It's just, <laughs> you know, every time I sit down to record the podcast, uh, I hear something that uh, just takes my breath away. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I don't sometimes like I when I'm listening to the podcast I think what a what a an awesome guy to sit here and like listen to everybody's big bag of bullshit you know and then I and then I kind of think I feel this like I don't know but in Buddhism they call it idiot compassion because I don't really know what you're going through but I have this like oh god his heart must be so heavy some days you know um but I I value this podcast being able to listen to it is a great help sometimes it's a really good help because people have these really intense stories you know and they're still laughing through it and i i value that because i'm in the same boat in a way mm-hmm. there was one listener and i can't remember her name but her story was just outrageously fucked up like she had this terrible childhood and still has really dysfunctional like sexual relationships as an adult and everything she said i was like yes 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 <laughs> me too yes fuck i want to be your friend you know yeah you know isn't that awesome when you hear a story that makes you feel less alone that yeah you where you just feel like Oh, I am a part of the fabric of the universe. Yeah. I'm not yeah. over on the on the nightstand uh, yeah. from the universe. Yeah. Well, and especially because then I'm I don't feel like a boner killer when I open up my mouth. You know, if somebody <laughs> asks me a question like, How are you? How did you grow up? That kind of thing, I can't be yeah. like, Oh, it was okay, because it wasn't. Yeah. You know, and I it's not like I feel a, a duty to enlighten people or any lofty bullshit like that. I just I'm I'm a blunt and honest person and I don't think I don't think it's fair to myself to sort of minimalize my life because it's mm-hmm. a, for me, it's an achievement that I'm here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big deal that I wake up every day and, and can get myself out of bed. You know, it's a big deal. So clearly your, your home life uh, was chaotic and abusive. Was there a mom in the picture? Yeah. And what was she like? Because um, well, it sounds like we got a snapshot of your dad that... I don't know how much more detail we need to go into because right. it's it, it um I mean, that might be the first one I've I've heard of 
um, somebody knowing that their father was raping their their mother oh. and, and my aunt, her sister as well. He, I mean, he's a he's a. Is he still alive? No, he died in eighty nine, and then my mom died in ninety six. Mm. So, but I mean, my dad is um, he is a very complex person, as a lot of people who have alcoholism and those kinds of emotional problems are. He d- he he had moments, you know, that were really great, and so I still to this day have like adult child of alcoholic problems where mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, he'll he'll be fine because <laughs> there are good days, you know. What were what were some of the fond memories of your of your dad? Well, <clears throat> uh, I I came out to my family when I was like twelve or thirteen, and I'm one of those kids who's like, I might as well have been born with a handbag and high heels, you know, because <laughs> there's just no. There was no closet for me ever, never. The closet would have to be the size of Texas to keep me in it, you know. Um, and so he was really mellow about it. And I was terrified of him because I thought he'd, you know, murder me essentially. But he was like, well, you're an artist, so go figure, you know. Um, and he would like, he would buy me crazy, like gender fucking punk rock clothes and like buy me crazy hair dye and cosmetics. And my mom was totally freaked out by all that and wouldn't do it, you know. But she wasn't freaked out about me being queer. She was just like, the way you look is embarrassing and crazy, and I, I, I hate it, you know. And my dad was like, draw me a picture, you know. So I do that. Those are good things, because he, he was the only person in my family who supported my creativity. What did that feel like? I felt like I was being heard, you know. It's like um, when you're this person who functions in a way that uh, most people don't understand including the, the sort of pictures that I draw um, in, in bringing the way that I think in my experiences into a, a visual field that I can actually witness outside of my head. That's, you know, mostly how my art is, how it functions for me. And he would look at it and he liked it. He would put them on his fridge and they were like, when I was a teenager, they'd be like crazy, like headless, bloody fucking like pentagrams and all sorts of crazy <laughs> shit like that, you know? Because I don't ever want to hurt somebody, so I just draw it all out. Yeah. You know, I mean, my artwork's not my artwork is not like that now. But um, and he would just be like, "Oh, that's great, I love that." And I think it was because he couldn't draw and always wanted to. He's one of those people who aspired to be. And he probably had that darkness inside him. That, oh my God! Yes, where it was like, yes, yeah, he was crazy. He was crazy, not and not ever in a constructive way. You know, yeah. <laughs> So it felt really good for him to be like, here, have this $500 camera. Here, have this, you know, $500 set of pencils or pens or whatever. You know, that felt really fantastic. How hard is it to reconcile those two things that that's the guy that threw you out a window? (laughs) Um, It was impossible for a long, long time. And I think um, being in therapy therapy for PTSD and and talking really frankly about it, because there was sexual stuff between he and I also and like I don't know that anything happened but I always felt that way I always felt like he was really creepy to me mm-hmm. to be around him um, at this point in my life I can I don't compartmentalize those two parts of him they're not polarized and I think it's because I've dealt with my own anger issues I've never had alcoholism but there's still this thing in me where I'm like I can sort of see it and I feel I feel pity for him which is not healthy but it's better than anger. What thing in you? An addictive personality or the need Mm-mm. for control or what? Um, 
Here's a, here's a, for example, my, my lovely friends here were trying to help me map out the way to get here. And I get overwhelmed really easily with travel stuff, you know? Um, and so in, in your hometown is, I live in Portland, okay. Oregon. Oh, do I love Portland. Yeah. Yeah. yeah me too. Uh, um, but so I get like, we're not communicating and I don't know what I'm doing and fuck, just leave me alone for like five fucking minutes and I got to deal with it. And that like, the more they talk to me and instruct me, I'm just hearing wah, 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 wah. And it feels like everything is in my face and in my ears and in my head and I can't breathe. I start to panic, you mm-hmm. know? And I, as an adult, as a 40 year old, I, I can look back and see that in my father. I mean, he would react a certain way. He wouldn't like take a deep breath and say, I'm really sorry. This just is really <laughs> difficult for me. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, but I feel compelled to launch you out of a window. <laughs> right. Please. <laughs> I, right. I hope by the time you hit the pavement, you've forgiven me. Yes. <laughs> now let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I've learned through a lot of really wonderful people and therapists, ideas like subject, subject consciousness, you know, where you don't, you don't speak for, with someone waiting to just reply to them or not listening to them and taking in a, an entire experience with somebody and remaining present. So now I have this ability, thank fucking God to sit with someone and have a conversation when I'm freaking out, you know, and be able to say, I'm just freaking out. It's no big deal. I'm going to take some deep breaths and like, you know, either walk away for a few minutes or, um, if you can hold space for me and sit here with me, then we can work it out. You know, I never raise my voice. Never. What a helpful way to communicate what you're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It saved, it saved my life and a lot of friendships, you know, I mean, my long-term friendships, I've maybe had, in 20 years, my best friend, we've had three arguments. And that's because she she's modeled that sort of communication for me and also because I've been receptive to it. You know, that's a really, really, really massively important part of healing and dealing with PTSD. And I have bipolar too, and I have, you know, massive night terror problems and nightmares. I don't sleep very well very often. So... You wake, oh. wake up, you bolt awake. I do. I do. It's hard for me actually sometimes to sleep with another person in bed because I mean, now it's easier because I'm medicated for that kind of shit. But in the past, I've like punched people in the face in my sleep and pushed them off the bed and like screamed at them and got rapey with them. And it's horrible because I don't, I'm not aware that that shit's happening until they wake me up and they're pissed off and don't want to deal with me. That's gotta you be know. intense. Very. I'm fine. Both parties. For both parties. Yeah, of course. Because if you're the person doing it and you don't know, you know, this is part of PTSD. Like, people do fucked up shit in their sleep. Like, there's a thing with um, war veterans a lot of time or people who've been in really intense situations where they, like, sleepwalk and will piss on their floor. Mm -hmm. You know, they like, or their bowels will evacuate because that terror is happening in their body. Wow. And then they just go to sleep and they wake up and there's a puddle of piss on their floor and they have no idea what's going on. But it's a super common thing from what I know, from what I've heard. You know, so for me, sometimes things are weird when I wake up and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what happened, but it did. Congratulations. Hostages, please forgive right. me. <laughs> right. You're cuckoo. There you go. Yeah. So give me some snapshots from, from childhood. We've gotten the ones with your abusive father. Hmm. Um, we've gotten the coming out of the closet, your mom being accepting of who you are, but not necessarily how you express yourself. Right. How I looked was like insane to her. By the time I was 16, I had my nose pierced, my lip pierced, and was just shoving safety pins through everything, you know? Um, What was school like for somebody like that? uh, 
I, I still am really uncomfortable around male teenagers. I still get really triggered. Like if I'm walking down the street and they're teenage males, it doesn't matter what ethnicity they are. My stomach drops. I start having palpitations and I freak out because people chased me. They tried to set me on fire a bunch of times would like break into my locker and throw all my shit away and just like randomly tackle me and just start punching me in the face. And you know, it was really brutal. And I went to three different junior highs, four different high schools, just because, you know, I would get called into the principal's office and they'd say like, you're dressed completely inappropriately. You're a distraction to all the kids here. You need to like, walk like a man kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, cause I swish, I model walk everywhere, you know, <laughs> that's just how I am. Nandi, you got it. Why wouldn't you work it? Right, right. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also it's, that comes from a lot of like sissy boys. This comes from having to learn ways to keep your head up no matter what. And one of those ways is by, what do you, what do you, what do you mean when you say that that comes from sissy boys? You got to learn to keep, keep your head up. It means when, when, when you're like faggot from birth, mm-hmm. right? And you can't tuck it in in any possible way. Even if you have a glorious family life and people are really supportive, there's still always scrutiny in public. Mm-hmm. Always. And a lot of times, especially for boys, it's violent. Mm-hmm. So um, the the keeping your head up part is learning how to be in public with dignity and confidence. I see. You know, instead of just being downtrodden and crying all the time. I got you. You know, and so one way that a lot of gay boys... Almost being proactive with your, like, I'm going to own this before you take it from me. Sure. It's like not being phased if someone calls me faggot. I'm like, yes, and. (laughs) It doesn't matter. That word doesn't mean anything to me anymore. It loses its punch, you know. Do people give you a hard time for using the the word faggot? Um, No, because they can't. They can't. I mean, I mean, uh, like people in the like gay in people. The, in the, yeah, and the. It wouldn't matter to me if they did. Okay, you know, if they haven't lived with that word hurled at them as a weapon, they don't know how it is, and they don't have the right to censor me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't like to be censored anyway, especially being that uh, coming from like the punk rock scene. Try it. It doesn't matter. I'll say what the fuck I want anyhow. You know, yeah. I don't use words to hurt other people, but I can. I can talk about my experience all I want in any way that I want. And I can, I can own that word, you know, cause it's been given to me. What did, you know? what did punk rock music feel like to you when you first discovered it? And oh, who were some of your God. favorite bands? Oh shit. Uh, well the first like real sort of punk song I ever heard was kill the poor by dead Kennedys. Mm-hmm. And I was in like fourth grade or third grade and it scared the shit out of me, you know, cause all these mean kids listened to it in grade school and then I was... They didn't get it. It was satire? No, 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 not at all. And I, I grew up in uh, Cardiff-by-the-Sea, right, in San Diego. And so it was kind of... There weren't that many people who were into that then in the early 80s, late 70s. Um, but the first time I heard it in a way that was joyous to me was this band called DOA, who are from Vancouver, BC. And there was a song called Fuck You. And I was, you know, super angry by the time I was in seventh grade. And um, I came home and my brother and this girl who went to my school, who I was trying to model myself after, she was a really pretty punk rock girl. Um, she was like dancing around with my brother in the living room. And I was super jealous of him because he was friends with her. And she fucking flat out ignored me because I wasn't fashionable enough. And they were listening to this song. And I just like, I don't know, just something exploded in my mind because the music is aggressive it's loud, it's raw, and it's angry in a constructive way, mostly. The music that I was listening to is super political. So I was learning. I was learning tolerance. 
and learning that other people could be and would be tolerant of me no matter what what was your brother like was he just trying to get laid or was he kind of no. into the punk rock scene he was into the punk rock scene i mean i i think did he turn you on to it or yeah okay yeah for sure um, were you were you close to your brother i was i was he he had the worst abuse out of any of us from my father i have through uh i have three siblings one came later she was born when i was 16 but my two older siblings um out of us three, I'm the youngest. My brother got it horribly, horribly from my father. Um, so I, punk rock made sense to him, mm -hmm. you know. And then he sort of transitioned into listening to reggae because I think he just got so tired of being angry. Because mm -hmm. for him, it w I think it would fuel his anger. For me, for me, it was like the inside of my mind coming to the outside of my life. Isn't Do you know that what I mean? Awesome when you find art like that. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's like a hug. Yeah. For sure, for sure. And being that young and going to like punk shows, it didn't matter that I was wearing makeup. It didn't matter if I was wearing a fucking skirt. It didn't matter if I showed up and was like, I'm going to hit you in the face. Ah! Because people are hitting each other in the face in a, this really loving, supportive way. Yeah. You know? So that helped because I knew I wasn't hurting anybody, you know, in a oh, way yeah. that was non consensual. The, f the first time I was in a mosh pit, and I don't claim to be a, uh, um, a connoisseur of the punk rock scene, it was just. Uh, there was a mosh pit at this show. It was one of the K-Rock acoustic Christmas shows. and um, It wasn't Lilith Fair? <laughs> it wasn't Lilith Fair. <laughs> I was in a sundress. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and I felt very self-conscious for about the first 30 seconds, but right. I think the hockey player in me was like, <laughs> right. I, I knew that there was a joy to be had from colliding. Yeah. And, um, and after about, I don't know, 45 seconds to a minute... I really just started to get into it, mm. and it was clear that nobody was trying to hurt each other, that mm -hmm. we were just trying to generate the ele electricity of two yeah. bodies colliding, yeah. and uh, yeah. and I really, I kind of let myself go for a minute or two, yeah. and then I was like, okay, I've done that now. You know? Right, right. It was... Because outside of something like boxing or MMA, which I, I really enjoy watching those two, which is not very stereotypical for, like, a gay dude, right? Uh, but outside of those things, there's not really much constructive violence that happens in a public arena, you know? Um, and I loved it. And also, because when I was really young, I'm like, I could touch hot guys' butts, you know, and they wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't do anything about it, which I would never do. At this point in my life, I probably wouldn't even get in a mosh pit because I have lots of, I've sustained a lot of injuries in my life, so I can't do it now. But um, what were some other, some other bands that uh, oh, um, sp really spoke to you? Any female-fronted band, any of them, X-Ray Specs. I listened to Nina Hagen and Lena Lovitch and... Later on, like artists like Diamante Galas, who's not punk rock, but um, the Slits. Mm -hmm. You did, know, did you like X? I did, but I never really got into them. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, were they not angry enough? Kinda. Yeah. When I was younger, that was really important for them to be super angry, and I was more into like thrash and hardcore than I was mm -hmm. into like say the Sex Pistols. Have you have you seen the documentary on Pussy Riot? Yes, it was yes. pretty awesome, wasn't it? Yes, yes. That, that is. Some bold ass yeah. art. I mean, yeah. you do that in Russia, yeah, where the consequences are not your parents are going to disown you, right? It's like, oh, you're going to do some fucking time, yeah, yeah. That's frightening, you know. I, I, when I look at those women, I think those are the women that I have modeled myself after through my life, mm -hmm. you know, because they, 
they do what's important regardless of how other people feel about it. And they take a situation that's totally fucked up. That's not just about them. Like they're not just talking about feminism. They're talking about gay rights. They're talking about how this man is affecting the economy of their country and all sorts of things. Everything. And the religious right in their country is absolutely insane. Like any country that has a theocracy, which I feel like we're approaching by the way, Mm. is so bad for an entire population, especially in a country as big as Russia. That's fucking insane. Yeah. You know, for one purple, one person to hold all the marbles for that country is nuts. It's scary. Yeah. And he just keeps consolidating power. It's, yeah. it, it's pretty scary. Yeah. Uh, you know who, who kind of one of my heroes is, you know, she's pretty mainstream, you know, as far as punk rock attitudes go, mm. but uh, Chrissy Hind, I just oh, think yeah. she is so badass. Yeah. She's very sleek. And, and she was, she came out of nowhere there was like nothing before her right and there's to me there's been nothing like her since there's just there's an authenticity to her right that i've never seen anybody combine uh, a woman combine um sexiness mm. aggression and independence and sometimes vulnerability mm. in a in a way that was so palatable huh. and not even approaching phony right but that's a little bit how I look at Joan Jett as yeah. an adult. A little bit, yeah, because I think she's a little bit more tomboyish and dirty. Mm-hmm. And I like dirty. I like I like Chrissy Hind. When I hear her speak, I'm like, ah, we could be friends. You know, yeah. she's an amazing woman. And also, I have this really great book called Cinderella's Big Score, and it's all about ladies in, in punk rock and the whole history of punk rock, like in rock and roll and all these different other forms, like Riot Girl and all the um like do you remember that band lush from the mm-hmm. 90s they're not punk rock they're not riot girl but they're you know alternative music mm-hmm. um what's the difference between punk rock and riot girl well riot girl for me is something that spawned out of punk rock but if i'm if i'm talking about punk rock that to me is confined to the 80s or maybe up to 1990 right. you know I, would uh courtney love be considered riot girl or is she too mainstream i don't I don't know because their their first record to me is just straight up punk rock, and everything after that became more palatable. It was was you know like okay, well I already did that. I got the I got the punk rock out of my system that everyone could hear that I've been listening to mm-hmm. already for ten years. That's a record I've wanted to make for a long time, and then everything else after that I think became more like this is how I feel now, yeah. not how I felt ten years ago. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's get back into your story. Sorry for the. Uh, no, it's great. The, all the questions about uh, about punk rock, <laughs> but um, uh, you know what that sound is. Time to give our sponsors some love, and uh, one of our sponsors for today is uh, Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Uh, as I've mentioned before on uh, previous uh, promotions for Squarespace, I decided to check their product out to make sure it really was as uh, easy and simple and affordable as they say it is, and uh, and it is. It uh, I went to uh, Squarespace and created a, a page. It's paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com, and I posted my favorite uh, dog pictures that, uh, that I've taken over the years, so you can go there, and it I think it took me less than an hour to to put it all together. It's uh, they have twenty highly customizable templates that you can choose from. Uh, they have a support team that works twenty four seven. You get actual people on the phone, not uh, you know an annoying series of. Uh, 
button pushing and uh, recorded messages. And it just starts at uh, eight bucks a month. And that includes a free domain name if you sign up for, for a year. And the cool part is um, if you go, uh, you can get a free trial and uh, 10% off if you go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Paul. And um, you don't even have to have a credit card to do the free trial. So you can um, spend time, uh, put a little site together, see how it looks, see how it works. And then if you decide you want it to go live in public, and it just costs you eight bucks a month. And uh, and I do it, and I like it, and I think they're a great sponsor. So go support them and support us. Um, again, for a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code PAUL. also want to give some love to Daily Burn. Uh, they are a, an amazing source of online workout videos. Um, Really, really put to, well put together website. Um, you can search by either trainers you like, uh, a style of workout you like. Uh, you can search by uh, the length of workout. Um, and they've got a huge variety of programs um, from Tabata to interval training to yoga. Um, you can decide whether or not you want to work with or without equipment. Um, you can decide whether you want to work either with or without an Esther Williams hat made of fruit. Nobody is going to stop you. Uh, and I am now, that, that is now my perfectionist angst moment number three, thinking to myself, could you have found an older reference, you over-the-hill douche? And no, I couldn't have. Um, you can access your Daily Burn workout from anywhere. Uh, you can connect across multiple devices like Roku, iPad, iPhone, and uh, soon PS3 and Xbox. And just for Mental Illness Happy Hour uh, users, you get the first 30 days free when you go to dailyburn.com slash happy hour. Check it out because exercising regularly is so important for mental health. I can tell you I would not be able to get out of bed if I didn't uh, exercise at least three times a week. Um, so yeah, check it out. Daily Burn, the best fitness anywhere. Where would, where would be a good place to go to next in your, uh, in your story? Well, let's see. So you're a teenager. You're you find this voice, right? Okay, that is a good that is a good place. It it took me a lot of places socially because I had I had really good friends who weren't um, who didn't have any any sort of uh, what do you call that um, agenda? Mm -hmm. No agenda. It was just hanging out and listening to crazy music and you know skill sharing makeup tips. You know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, these female friends, male friends, both, both, yeah, both. Yeah. There was like in each high school I went to, there was at least one other gay kid, but they were afraid. Every single gay kid I met in high school were afraid and they would like even whisper stuff to me cause they couldn't, they couldn't handle any other person knowing. And so I got to, sure they were in the closet, uh, not to their circle of friends, but in school and in school, I wasn't interested in being in a closet. It's never interested me except for maybe one year of my life. You must have been like a light tower maybe to to people i i imagine that you were a refuge like a, a life preserver to to people that were i know he's mm -hmm. shaking his head right now saying no but no. imagine you're in a school and you think nobody else is like you and mm. then you come swishing down the hall <laughs> proud of who you are yeah nandi i mean that's that's beautiful that is, that is that's fucking bravery. And I know you would say, but I couldn't hide the way I swished down the hall. But that's not why I'm nodding my head. The, the, the thing is, I can see the other side of it as seeing that as threatening. 
if people were associating with me, then other people would point the finger at them and say like, oh, well, you must be because you're hanging out with that flaming faggot, you know? And so for me, uh, for me, it felt good. For me, it always feels good just to be, have everything out there, you know? Because first of all, I don't have time. I don't have time to hide anything. I have this one life and who knows when it's going to end. So I might as well be like, well, this is happening. But but in you a know? way, I th- I think to, to that person, being associated with you is almost like training wheels for them coming out. Maybe. Like, like here's a way that I can test the waters of being who I am yeah. that I can associate with this person. You know, I'm just putting myself in the in the in the shoes of the person that doesn't sure. have that like I you know, I wanted to be in theater at, mm-hmm. in high school mm-hmm. and I didn't have the bravery to do that because I didn't want to be associated with right. the people that were in theater because I thought sure. I, I would get made fun of. <laughs> yeah, of course. And you would have. Yeah. You know, I, I did, but that was just like, oh, whatever. That's icing on the cake for me to be like, you're in theater. Well, yeah, but for me, life sort of is because I have to walk this really fine line. You know, I mean, my my friends were, were being murdered and shit already when I was in high school. What? You know, for, for being queer and for being anti-racist and all this kind of shit. And... So, so for me, I understand as an adult why like other gay kids wouldn't want to be around me. And when gay people were murdered in the eighties where I lived, it wasn't making the paper. Matthew Shepard things weren't happening. It wasn't sensational. It was like, well, they probably shouldn't have been that way. Was this you in know? San Diego? No, uh, we we moved up to Sacramento when I was twelve or thirteen, and that city is a fucking shithole. And I'm sorry for those of you from Sacramento listening, <laughs> but you know it's it's cute now, but it was not. It was terrible and super dangerous. Was it kind of rednecky? Um, I don't know how to describe it. Just socially unconscious. Lots like a huge problem with neo-Nazi skinheads back Mm. then. Humongous problem with them. I had three friends murdered by those people. What? You know, and they were never caught. And these were kids who were 15, 16 years old, you know. And a lot of my friends were committing suicide too because they couldn't handle, they couldn't handle the pressure of being out. They couldn't handle the abuse. You know, I didn't have a safe space. My family life was horribly, was just horrible. You know, I didn't have friends in my home. I didn't, I, I, like the only friends I had were these punk rock kids. And know? they're getting picked off. Yeah. And committing suicide because their families rejected them and their schools rejected them and they, they couldn't handle it. And I feel like, and this is really twisted, but I felt really thankful that I'd been abused already before that was happening. So I was like, well, what are you going to do? Punch me in the face? Okay, I can take it because it's already happened a hundred times in my home. You know, so it didn't matter that other people were like, wow, well, I'm going to beat you up. I'm like, oh, good. Another round. <laughs> Cute. You're touching me. Bring it on. You know, it. I mean, of course, it bothered me and it hurt very deeply, but I already had this tool to like suck it up and take it and get up and swish my way <laughs> to the bus or wherever I was going afterward. You know, you are so awesome. <laughs> you really are. Well, thanks. So the so this this whole thing is like this is this is where um a sexual abuse starts to come into the picture, you know. Um I would be uh, in Sacramento there's this this neighborhood that we all called Lavender Heights, which do you know Sacramento very well? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, um so there's a there's this big house that's like the LGBT center for youth for for young kids, but then like a block away there's four gay bars. Right. Mm -hmm. So like all the young kids like me who are like, 
I'm 16 and I have a fucking hard on every day, all day. I jack off nine times a day if I can. You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. I I want a dick on me, in me, around me. I need to figure out how to have sex with dudes, mm-hmm. you know? So I would hang out around these gay bars. And of course, there's Were you like a virgin these... at, that, at that time? No, because that one year I talked about before where I was like, I'm struggling with my identity kind of thing. I tried to have girlfriends. And so I had sex with a couple of girls when I was like 13, you know? And it was nice. It felt good. Sex is awesome. You know, no matter how you're having it, if it's consensual and it's fun. Right. But it just, the, there wasn't that like electric pheromonal charge where like, I never had butterflies with girls. Never. Mm -hmm. And the first time I had butterflies with a a guy after puberty, it was magical, you know, because I was just like, uh, uh, (laughs) oh, need it, you know? Um, And so I would be hanging out at this gay bar trying to just talk with other gay people and oftentimes they were like these sort of lecherous guys in their late 20s or 30s who would be like, <laughs> virgin, you know, and I was really scared of sex. So I'd, I'd never had penetrative sex until I was probably in my early 20s, you know, because I just it was too much. I couldn't handle it. But I'd also had, um, oh, I should say. Too much say, physically or emotionally or both? Well, all of the above, because from... 16 and when i was 16 i had two rape experiences so that wasn't penetrative uh sex on on my and my wishes and by my my consent you know so those things already just fucked me up pretty bad it, it was penetrative the, yeah, the yeah, rape. yeah. Oh, i'm so yeah, sorry yeah. um one one was my uncle and another was this guy who took me in when i ran away and it was a classic sort of thing of like, I'll take you in and I'm, I feel bad and you'll have a place to stay. You know, bought me like a toothbrush and gave me a shower and bought me wine coolers, you know. I, I want to say to any kids out there that are 15 or 16 years old, um, any age, any adult that befriends you and starts to give you liquor, yeah. run. Run away. It never turns it. out good. No. It never turns out good. You are in the presence of a predator right and they're not and they're not doing you a service they're not being nice to you it's not helpful and it's not about just having fun and connecting with you as a human being or helping you at all no matter how they come across to you it's not okay like i i want to hang out with gay teenagers right because i have a lot to offer i think you know um yeah and there's a huge difference between i'm not trying to give them alcohol or smoke weed with them or any of that shit um so that I, i mean uh all of that was really confusing all of that for me like with this particular guy we walk into his apartment he has all these like trophies and awards for this like um martial arts things and i'm thinking like what if i say no wow what if i say no what 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 happens you know and there's there's this thing that happens was this the the wine cooler guy or a different guy this is the wine cooler guy um and so uh um uh, I'm I'm drinking and I get drunk. Was and, it Bartles or James? Um, it was a three-way with me and Bartle <laughs> and James. <laughs> uh, so younger uh, people may not get that reference. No. Is that even around anymore? Bartles and James wine coolers. Those I think were in select neighborhoods, maybe very popular. Like MD twenty twenty and Night Train and all that. Rubbish. Very po- very popular in yeah. the eighties. Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially with thirteen-year-olds, you know, mm-hmm. like Bacardi and or Bartles and James. Yeah. Um, but so there's this thing that happens with kids when they, when they experience a great trauma, they go to sleep. A lot of kids that happens to you. And I was one of those kids. There's fight or flight or freeze. And I would freeze and go to sleep. I would just be unconscious. So there are like pockets of time in my life that I don't remember because I was in that state so much. Um, 
but with this guy it happened and when i when i came to he was fucking me like really hard you know and i i was just kind of like uh, stunned and i was like what what the fuck are you doing and he was like well i'm fucking you duh you know and i said well could you stop and he said nope i'm not finished it's not i'm not stopping because you want me to or whatever and i just like was like i remember just looking at this trophy sort of like being like i don't i don't know what to do you know because if i if i stop he could be like choke me out he could i didn't i didn't know and chances are he would just be like blah your cock tease or whatever you know mm-hmm. but who knows that is so you awful know? so i just i fucking went back to sleep i went back to sleep that's just how it how it went down you know um and then I I went back home because I was like fuck this I can't I can't survive on the street because this thing is gonna keep happening over and over because I'm dumb I'm dumb I'm so dumb I'll go with anybody who who likes me who pays attention to me in a positive way you know and so um, when did you not blame yourself for that because you seem like a strong enough person that you've been able to make that connection now and yeah. to say that there was no fault of mine in that situation. Um, and I wasn't dumb. Well, it's it's sort of complicated because sometimes when that happens in the moment, you're like, that was not my fault. But there's still always this thing because there's there's a pressure put on you as a young gay person who's out and, of course, highly sexual and sexualized even by people who hate you because they focus on what you're doing with your junk, you mm-hmm. know? And so it like both things happen simultaneously and it creates this confusion you know, that could last for years and years where you're like, I know it wasn't my fault, but it's totally my fault. And I feel like a piece of shit for that happening to me. Cause in some way I chose that. By because it was under the umbrella of I'm going to go out and get some experience. Sort or... of. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, that's a huge umbrella. I mean, and, uh, but I that mean, wasn't the experience you were seeking. And is it hard for you to separate that that was completely separate from you finding your sexuality? That it had nothing to do with you being in the, in, in, the, in the mode of, I want to go get laid. Well, here, okay, so here's the thing. And this feeds into like every rape experience I've had, which is, I want company. I want intimacy. Because I don't get that in a broader scale. At this point in my life, it's easy for me to pick and choose where I get it and find it and do it. You know, because I'm strong enough to be like, no, fuck that, fuck you, I'm out. You know, um, but then it was like, you don't you don't necessarily know what intimacy is or how to achieve it. Right. Yeah. So you, so you like, will meet people that are nice to you and they want to give you a hug or they want to sit close to you or they want to ask you personal questions. Like somebody asking you, how do you feel at 16 is a really big deal because then you can be like, I'm confused. I have fucking zits on my face, braces on my teeth and I feel ugly and gross and I just want to be touched. But that's not the same as I want to be fucked or I want you to put your tongue in my mouth. You know, but mm-hmm. when you're a kid and you're hormonal and you have a fucking boner every day, all day, it's hard to negotiate that space because you don't have, I didn't have anyone to model that for me, any communication around sex or relationships or intimacy. So I, and you don't understand nuance at that, no, at that age. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I think as an adult, when somebody's acting that way to me, I pick up on that and I'm like, well, you want to fuck me, but it's not going to happen. Or the other way around, if you're like, you want to fuck me, and hell no. And I'm like, okay, got it. Backing away, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think it took maybe until my my mid-20s, the first time I was in therapy, to feel like, oh, that shit wasn't my fault. And actually to put a lot of things together where I didn't feel like 
other instances where there was non-consensual sex, I didn't view it as rape in my life before because it wasn't like I was being punched in the face while it was happening. Right. You know, because that's the story we're all told. Like, this is this is rape against women as someone coming out of the bushes and just beating mm-hmm. the shit out of you, you know. Um, but it's still rape when you say, I'm not, please don't. <laughs> yeah. And it happens anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry you had to experience um, those things. Mm. Hmm. It's, it's interesting because I, I feel I feel thankful for them and not in a twisted way where I feel like I deserve them or something, but just because it gives me something to offer people who are through it mm-hmm. or going through it and don't know how to react, behave, accept, heal, move on, or any of those things that need to happen, you know? Can you recall any of the connections you've made to people, to other people, other survivors, um, and moments where you felt, oh, what I went through wasn't for nothing. Um, I think sometimes those are remote experiences. Um, and sometimes they were more like, I've always been really interested in like girls night out kind of things. I've always had female best friends, which is a really typical story for, for a lot of gay men. Um, a lot of those were like me reading statistics on male rape. Male, you know, and statistics on female rape, which is insane. It's like one in four women experience some sort of, you know, rape, sexual or, trauma. Right, right, right. And so I would ask my lady friends because they're the ones that I could come to and be like, this happened. I'm out of my mind. And they would walk me through it and be like, oh, I, girl, I know. This is, I know, you know, this is how you can step out of that. You know, I mean, the trauma may never be gone. It can be diffused through like EMDR and all that stuff. But this is how you do it. And like I said before, I had these great women to model really uh, great communication and how to go through these things. So then if I met younger kids, I could be their cautionary tale, you know, which is not like a shitty place to come from. Not to me, because I could be like, okay, be careful, you know, to all these like younger kids and they could avoid it. You know, and, and there there's such deep meaning and purpose in being able to share something so important yeah. with somebody, even if it's not cautionary, if it's comforting, yeah. if, if it's um, can help lead them to an epiphany or a breakthrough in yeah. terms of self-compassion. Yeah. Yeah. Like and I, I think the way that that all started with me was getting into doing spoken word and doing like doing poetry nights places because I would just write all the time. I still write all the time, but I would get up on stage like crying and, and like screaming about rape and how much I hate men and all this kind of stuff. And every single time some young boy would approach me and say like, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for being vulnerable. All of that kind of stuff. And I'm like, whatever, fuck this. I'm out of here, you know, cause I couldn't <laughs> handle it, you know? And I still have that thing. Like when my band is done with a set, I can't hang out. I don't want to hear compliments. I don't want to hear criticism. I don't care how other people experience it because I'm doing it for me, not for them, you know? So it's still like, it's kind of, it's tricky. Do you sing? I do. Yeah. 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 Do you play an instrument or just sing? I do. I play bass and I play drums as well. So when you, when you're in your band, are you the lead singer or are you? Well, unfortunately my band is done now, but um, we had two singers in that band and I also um, I do some projects on the side like my friends will ask me to sing at a, at a for a venue mm-hmm. and so I'll like recruit guitarists or something and we'll do a couple ditties yeah yeah so what's another snapshot another seminal moment from from your life either painful embarrassing positive transformative 
Oh, God. Or, or an arc of something in your life, a process. An arc of something may be... I think coming out of my teens and having having these uh, suspicions of incest confirmed in my life, having this thing happen with my uncle right after that first rape thing, being open with my family about it and being shunned from them and feeling crazy and unworthy for that. And like my bipolar would start to be a little more pronounced at that part and just feeling out of control going from that to where I am now is this tremendous arc of self-control, recognizing who I am, what I'm doing, the value of my experience. Let's let's back up. What what was the the situation with your uncle? What did you say to your family, and how did they react? And, so, and did you ever confront your uncle? Yeah. Um, so how this happened was uh, my my younger sister was born when I was 16 um, in February. And the following winter, my mom wanted to take her home to Indianapolis, where she was raised, to be baptized by a priest that she really loved. And my father died in June of that year. And we went back to Indiana, and I had this uncle who was similar to my father and that he would like buy me punk records and we could sit around and shoot the shit. He'd buy me cigarettes and we'd smoke weed and all that kind of stuff. So I, I viewed him as just like a friend, you know, cause he worked really hard to be like, come hang out. Those people are assholes, you know, talking about our family. And, um, the first night we were there, we started talking just about things that were happening in my life, you know, and you were how old at this point? I was 16. Okay. I just yeah. turned 16. And, um, <clears throat> He was like understanding everything I was saying. So I was just getting into all this bullshitty new age stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and I would talk to him about it and he asked me to explain it and explain it. And he'd be like, oh yeah, that's totally cool. I get it. And, um, I had a, I had this place to sleep on the floor cause my grandparents lived in this small condo and there were like seven or eight people there at that point. And they were, we were all there for the baptismal and Christmas and all that. Um, and so he had invited me like, oh, just come sleep in my room, you know? He, he offered me a place in his bed and I was like, this is post Bartles and James, you know? So I'm kind of <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It feels weird. And he's like, just, it's no big deal. Just, we'll just share a bed whatever. So I couldn't sleep on the floor. I was having really bad insomnia. So I decided to go in and lay down next to him. And then there was this awkward sort of silence, you know, like physical silence, if you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he like put his arm around me and then he was laying on top of me and then, you know, he was putting my hand down his pants and then he had his fingers up my ass and then he's like kissing me open mouth, telling me he loves me. And I'm, and I'm like frozen trying to sort of push him off of me, you know, and I'm saying like, what, what are you doing? What the fuck is, what is going on? You know? And he's saying like, I'm just, I just love you, you know? And, um, and I finally like pushed him off and I went into the bathroom and I was just sobbing and trying to hold my, trying to keep my voice down because I didn't want anybody to hear, you know, because already at this point I'd been like the person who ruins everything, you know, <laughs> in my family. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to fucking ruin this. this is terrible. Um, and, and the shittiest thing about this is like, I was totally aroused Right. And this is a thing that is really common for, for men when they're raped. It's like, well, I have a hard on. So they think that I'm enjoying this, but super common. That's not the 
that's not a fact at all. That's just a physiological response. Yeah. You know, your body and your soul are two different entities. Sure. And so I was like, uh, and now I can, I'm, I'm, I have this like laughing spell about it, but I'm like sobbing and jerking off at the same time being like, (laughs) I don't know what to do. Jack off, jack off, you know? And so I like have this full release and this is by yourself then in in the the bathroom. bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. And I have this full release and then I'm just sitting there like, I don't know how to go back in that room. I don't know how to leave oh. the bathroom. I don't know. I just don't know. Oh, don't, that breaks my heart. Do. And so I went, I went back in there and he's like scolding me, you know, and he's like, you left here like you were going to fucking vomit. And what the fuck is wrong with you? And I'm, and I just ignored him and he like laid on top of me and I just fell asleep. Like I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. You know, I wanted to like go get my brother and have, have this big ordeal about it, but it didn't, it didn't seem fair to me to create that you know? And so I, I went like maybe five days of just breaking down every single day and ignoring him and trying to go about my business. But at the end of the week, it was so bad. I was like, I, I was going to kill myself cause I couldn't handle it, you know? And I kept getting in trouble for ruining things cause I'm crying, you know? And everybody in my family is saying like, nobody oh, knows why. No. No. And they're all saying like, oh, I know your father just died and it's really terrible for you, but he was an asshole and get over it. And I'm like, I'm not upset about that. I'm not upset about that in the fucking least. You know, I'm over that. And they're like, well, why are you so upset? And I'm like, you wouldn't, you just wouldn't get it, you know? And finally I was cornered by my grandmother who was adamant about me telling her what's wrong. And I, and I'm telling her this, like, you're not going to get it. It's going to be, you don't want to hear it. And she does this bullshitty thing where she's like, well, I've been around a long time <laughs> shit, you know? And so I tell her and she goes, <clears throat> cause this is her son, her son. Yeah. yeah. My mother's brother. And she says, <clears throat> uh, are you sure this is the truth? And I started laughing hysterically at her. That's my thing for my whole life. When I'm super uncomfortable about things, I, I giggle or I shut down and I've chosen to giggle, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was like, see, you're laughing, you're lying to me, you're, you're doing this thing. And I I start arguing with her and saying like, this has been the only person in this family that I've ever been able to talk to. Why would I sabotage him? Why would I throw him under the bus like that? You know? And she says, well, look at you, look at who you are. Why wouldn't you, you really want attention all over the place, you know? And I'm like, actually, no, I, I would appreciate it if you would fuck right off and leave me alone, like for the rest of my life, you know? Um, and so she, her, her punishment to me was to make me be alone with him all the time, was to make me ride in the car with him, was to make me apologize to him in front of everybody, you know, for doing this whole thing. Um, so were other family members notified that you had this quote unquote lie about him? Well, that was a threat. I don't know how she followed through or who, or or who, Oh, one thing that she did was she said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to ask your grandfather if he believes you. And if he doesn't believe you, then it's over kind of thing. And he, and he of course was like, grumble, grumble. No, you know? Um, so I don't know how she followed through or, or what, because I was so shamed, you know, that I just didn't no eye contact no speaking, just, I wanted to fucking kill everybody, you know? So anytime someone said something to me, I just barked at them. And then of course I, I was set up to ruin everything. So and then I you're the drama, you're the, you're the drama queen. Yeah. 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 Of course. And that, I mean, that played out until that happened in 89 and that, that played out until 
Mm, I mean, it's still played out, playing out. I don't, I don't talk to my family, but, um, you know, my mom died in 96 and when she died, my family died as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. I have one aunt that I speak to and two sisters that I speak to and that's, that's it. That's it. Cause it's not resolved. It'll never be resolved until he's dead until my grandmother's dead, you know? And that's a shitty thing to have to be like when they're dead, I can breathe, mm -hmm. you know, it sucks. And that, I mean, that's an arc in and of itself. Cause I'm not blaming myself for any of that shit anymore at this point. I'm like, I just have a shitty Irish Catholic dysfunctional family that is so obsessed with appearances and being good and being right and going to heaven and all that rubbish that they can't, they can't look at another human being and say, I'm sorry, I failed you. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing I ever wanted to hear. I didn't want my grandmother to feel like she was at fault for it happening. I wanted her to say, I'm sorry, I didn't believe you. I love you. Two sentences will cure everything, you know, it just never happened. And I could ask every single year and say, can we talk about this? I don't want to be angry at you. I don't want to hate you when you're dead. You know, I want to love you until you die and then keep loving you. But it's just not. Do you think sometimes people are afraid to go to that place because they come from an environment where things were held over people's heads and they think that if they admit wrong, something is going to be used against them forever, that that they can't imagine it could be resolved with an, an apology mm. and that that person isn't going to... I, th I, I think a lot of times when there are for lack of a better word, really tradition-oriented um, households where religion isn't questioned mm -hmm. and things are buried and feelings aren't talked about, then mm -hmm. the aggression becomes very passive-aggressive. Yeah. And you cling to whatever little power you can get. It's, will you hurt me that last time? And it makes it so toxic that it's so hard for somebody to admit wrong mm -hmm. that it's it just feeds on itself and it becomes this sludge yeah where where nothing can slates can't be wiped clean no they can't because they're generations old yeah you know? and i think in my family particularly with my father he had insane stories of like incest and fam familial rape and all that shit um and my mom's family i think what happened is they had this tradition of like rapey stuff that happened in their family or a lot of the women in my family were molested, maybe not by family members, probably not by family members, but they passed down this tradition of we don't talk about it. It's just something that happens. And if, and if I can't relate to it and it happens to you, then I, I, I can't acknowledge it because I don't, I don't want my heart to hurt for anyone else but me and my children. You know, and I think another common thing too is if I'm going to talk about you being raped, I'm going to have to confront that I was raped and I haven't talked about it. Indeed, I think that's a really, really big one. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, five years after this thing happened with my with my uncle, I, I, I stopped being angry at my grandmother, um, and just was like, I can't feel sorry for her anymore, and I can't be angry at her anymore either, and I also can't have anything to do with her because that's the safest thing for my sanity. Cause as it, as it is, even as an adult, as somebody who is fairly rational, I still have to ration out my sanity in certain mm -hmm. situations, you know, have to say like, is this worth being crazy over? Nope. Sure as fuck isn't. Yeah. I, I guess that that would be called, um, self-parenting, which I kind of, I, I don't really like that, that term, <laughs> yeah. but my therapist and friends in my support group, you know, uh, 
pound that into my head. Yeah. You need to begin. You need to forget about that parent. You weren't parented. You need to begin doing right. nice things for yourself and protecting yourself from situations that are right. are toxic. And right. talk talk about how you've self-parented. What are some of the things that you do where you find yourself going to to be in that old habit mm-hmm. and you stop yourself and you and you self-parent? Um well, I, the way I refer to that is just self-care. Yeah. Right. Where I look at the broad scope of uh, knowing how something will affect me. And there's simple things like um, I've, I've gone out a couple times with my friends here in L.A. and I have to engage in a lot of self-care when I go out because I have really strong proximity and noise issues. You know, sudden noises and lots of volume is really triggery for me. And I've been out a lot of times and just broke down and cried and felt really embarrassed and all that shit. So I have to know where I am in that emotionally. I have to be really prepared, you know, otherwise I'm just wet poodle. I'm just shaking the entire time and not, and not pleasant to be around. And so I have to think, are these friends who can support that? And if I say I need to go right now, they'll go with me and not be angry with me which is a huge part of my self-care. Or um, I, I will say, if I've made plans with somebody and I, and I wake up on the wrong side of my bipolar coaster, I have to like... <laughs> I love that. I've never <laughs> right. heard that. Right. My bipolar coaster. That's yeah. awesome. Oh, well, there's, I have this whole thing called the abusement park. Right. <laughs> Where you can be on the bipolar coaster or the unmerry go round you know, all of these things. Um, but so I have to, I have to, I, first of all, the, the biggest thing about engaging self-care is surrounding myself by people who also do that and respect 100% when I need to say, I can't do what I said I was going to do because I'm feeling nutty, you know? And it sounds like you, there is a foundation of self-knowledge that's come through hard work and therapy and getting yeah. an objective opinion from a mental health professional. Yes. Which, which is the most important thing I've ever done in my entire life is, is allow myself to be vulnerable. I've put myself in psychiatric care cause I couldn't function. You know, I would be like on the Burnside bridge in Portland, you know, or the, some other bridge just sobbing, trying to figure out whether or not I should jump off it. You know, and I could, I couldn't come up with an answer. I just couldn't. And I, I you know, Portland is such a weird place because I've, I've, before I was medicated properly, I would just be falling apart in public all the time. Nobody would ever say, are you okay? Can I help you? Is there someone you could call? And I would just feel like this invisible wreck, you know? Um, and I finally decided I need, I need to go to the hospital, you know? Talk about that. Well, uh, I, I was having that experience where I was breaking down all the time and I was telling complete strangers, like, should I, should I kill myself? Is it worth it to be here? How do you feel about being here kind of thing, which is really fucking nutty to do. Yeah, that's I bet they couldn't wait for the walk sign to come on. (laughs) No, they couldn't. I mean, it wasn't like going person to person kind of thing. But if someone dared to make eye contact with me, I was like, they want to hear what I have to say, you know, (laughs) Um, which, by the way, doesn't happen anymore in my life. Um, But I, I, I just was out of control. I was so out of control. And. I, I had this really great housemate at the time, the people I'm visiting now, actually. And I, I was like, have you, I think that you've been here before. Just tell me what to do. And they say, you need therapy. And I was like, no, I need something bigger. And I don't know what's bigger. Um, and so I, I ran into Cascadia Behavioral Health, which is this great place where you just go, I'm fucked. And they go, well, here are some options for you. 
and uh and they gave me the options and i had i had like some weapons on me that i was like this these weapons are going to happen today or i'm getting help today and and they were like well let's get you some help you know what did that feel like when you heard that um it felt complicated you know talk, a, talk about that ex- well on the one hand i felt like i'm so weak that i can't even live and that feels terrible you know that confirmed everything that every person has ever said about me that i'm weak that i'm worthless that nothing's going to happen with me that and i deserve it because i'm not strong enough to crawl out of it you know and this was before my understanding of bi- bipolar disorder that's not my fault that i can't help it you know um another part of it was this deep relief that I wasn't going to have to control any aspect of my life, you know, that you could collapse in an appropriate place to collapse. Yeah. That I could fall apart, you know, like, like Pema children's whole thing is like letting things fall apart. And I let shit fall apart in a controlled environment, you know? And when, when you have the kind of experiences that I've had in my life, falling apart is the last thing that you can ever let anyone see you do. And that's probably not true, you know, across the board, but when you're already part of a vulnerable population, when you fall apart and become further vulnerable, that's when your uncle people get invites you. you into bed. Sure. That's when all of that kind of shit happens. Or that's, you know, I, I would be, I was so lucky to be falling apart like that in Portland. Or like when I lived in this Buddhist center in Colorado, I fell apart all the time. But if I were to fall apart in downtown Los Angeles, or if I were to fall apart in Manhattan or somewhere, I would just be picked apart. I think they give you a deli ticket. <laughs> Get in line. Right, 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 right. That, I mean, that might be comforting. But um, So I, I went into the hospital and I had great diagnostic care. This, this woman said, what, what kind of medication are you on? And how do you live? And how is this and this and this and this? And after we ran down this checklist, she was like, okay, here are some things that make sense about what you're going through. A, I think that SSRIs don't make sense for you to take because I, you know, I have to titrate up all the time until I'm taking this, you know, 1200 milligrams of something and that will last a month. And then I'm still in suicidal ideation and all that stuff. So she said, we're going to try you on Lamotrigine, which is a brain seizure medication that works fairly well for people who have bipolar two, which I have. Um, and she said, and you don't sleep. You just don't sleep, you know? So I did a sleep log where, you know, you wake up and you put a hash mark on a piece of paper and I would wake up not, not being able to recall that I did it even one time. And there would be like 16 hash marks on this piece of paper, you know? So I'd woken up 16 times through six hours of sleep. You must've been exhausted. Yeah. Like my whole life has been that way, you know? And which I can remember being a kid, you know, a, a tired and I threw up in my sleep all the time and be so exhausted. I just fall asleep in it. And then, oh my God. you know, have these really terrible reactions from my family calling me disgusting all the time. And I'm like, I can't help it. I'm so frightened and nervous all the time that I'm throwing up in my sleep, you know? But it, it, when I was in the hospital, she was like, okay, we're going to prescribe you this drug that it doesn't put you to sleep, but it keeps you to sleep once you're there. And then we're going to give you this other medication that blocks night terrors and nightmares. And so I slept for four days. Wow. For four fucking days, you know. <laughs> How did that feel? Good, really good. And I actually kept a, a did a video blog of it when I would wake up. I would be like, I I want to document this, so I put it all on YouTube. Me being in the mental hospital because it was a step down center, so I could have my phone and my computer and all that stuff. Um, it felt good because I felt like maybe this is the first time in my life I've had sleep that wasn't induced by weed or drinking till I passed out, kind of thing. You know, which those things have been happened really rarely in my life, but 
still, it was really great. And I still take those medications, but I, I have this weird thing where I, I, I resent having to take medication. <laughs> Me too. Right. So I'm yeah. like, fuck those pills. I'll just sleep on my own. And then I have night terrors and it's this really terrible thing. So I'm like, and fuck, then you I go back them. on them, yeah. you call your psychiatrist up. Sorry. Yeah. I strayed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, actually my, my therapist, I'm like, I'm not taking the pills this week. I'm just telling you, I'm going to have a really yeah. fucked up week. So when I come in next week, we'll know what shape I'm in, you know? Yeah. This is part of my thing that it's really hard for me to control because I have, I have the, if I take this, I'm going to die syndrome with pills. And then I also have this like, why can't I just be normal? Why mm-hmm. can't I just sleep on my own? You know? What makes you think you're going to die if you take the pills? I don't know. I don't know. I've been that way since I was a kid also. I have no idea. Sometimes it used to be with aspirin for years. I wouldn't take aspirin if I had a headache because I would think something's going to happen. It might, I think sometimes it might've been the, and I don't know if you remember this, but there was a cyanide thing with Tylenol in I the eighties. Right. Yeah. Where it's laced some disgruntled employee or something. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I think when I heard about that as a kid, I was like, Oh my God, aspirin can kill you. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what it meant for someone to put cyanide in it. You know, that was before they started sealing packages. Yep. Yeah. And that's why they started. Yeah. I think that maybe that was in like 82 Something like maybe that. somewhere around there. Oh, that was big news. Big yeah. news. Yeah. And I don't know if that was the start of it, but for me, it would kind of make sense because I didn't have any negative reference to taking pills, but I also never had to take anything except for, um, tetracycline or something. So I had chronic bronchitis as a kid too. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, it, but it exists. <laughs> so what did you leave the hospital with other than, um, meds? What what was the experience? What did you take from it emotionally or intellectually? That was that took a long time for me to figure out because I left too soon. I left way too soon. I felt really guilty for being there when when it, it, there's limited beds. There's like 16 beds in this place, and a lot of people want or need to go there because it's not it's not the emergency room experience where you're in this place that you have to engage in group therapy every day and you have to do this and you have to do that you know? So with such limited space, there were people coming in who were just like, I was catatonic when I first went in there, you know, cause I, it felt weird, but there were people coming in who were just beyond that, beyond that. They needed help standing up. They needed help eating because they were just gone mm-hmm. in that, you know, depression, or I don't know what their psychological state is outside of that place. And I felt like I, I can't take a bed from someone like that. I just can't you know, and I was still like, this was, this was like my fourth or fifth day in there. And I thought, okay, I, I just have to leave. I need to get back out on that bridge. Th- yeah. That bridge needs me. <laughs> exactly. I need a bridge hug right now. So I, I left feeling still crazy, but less suicidal, you know, I left be, feeling a little bit more brave. Be, before people jump off bridges in Portland, do they uh, salute a $6 espresso? Put it, <laughs> put it down the hatch. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think, I don't know. It, it's touchy for me because I've had friends do that since I've lived I'm there. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's not, I don't, I, I don't take offense to it because it's, okay. it's very, it's a very Portland thing to be like, well, I'm just going to do one last organic, gluten-free, non-gender specific thing. <laughs> Before I jump off this bridge, you know, that's my final salute. I'm going to, I'm going to do something really good for humanity. And then I'm going to fuck over all my friends, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, 
in the end, what I took away from it was that I, that was the best act of self-care I'd done as an adult and not to take any lip, lip service from people who don't either trust or understand that experience. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I have friends who constantly consult toxic people in their lives mm. And they're like, well, you just need to suck it up or, nope. you know, you just need, and I just, I, and I will always say to them, is that person an addict? Is that person ever gone right. to therapy? Is that person a trained professional? Right. You know, right. And it's usually somebody that treats them like shit. Right. Well, one important question that I ask people when they have that kind of judgment scenario, is I say, do you know the difference between depression and sadness? And if they think they're the same thing, then they can fuck right off with their with their judgment. And if they understand the difference between them, but haven't experienced both, then I'm not interested in how they feel about my mental health. You know, I had to I had to really field and weed out a lot of friends because some of them would like, oh, hi, how are you today? I'm like, fuck off. I'm fine. I'm fine. You don't understand that my going in there was good for me and not because it reeled in my crazy, but because I got to fucking relax. You know, mm -hmm. I got to sleep. I got to talk about things in this really frank manner that was so helpful for me because it gave me tools and told me it's okay for me to sleep. Not just it's okay for me to fall apart because I can say that all day long, but when I've actually had the experience and people are like, go to sleep, fuck group fuck eating you know if you're the loved one of somebody who is battling mental illness or depression the one thing that you can say to them that never fails is i just want to tell you that i love you and give them a hug indeed there's indeed never a time that that is not appropriate you know the best the best or response... ask them if they want a hug maybe they don't want sure. to be hugged you know sure i don't i don't always like touch touch is really weird for me sometimes um I had this really, really lovely partner one time who I going on first dates is really terrible for me. It's kind of nightmares because I'm all face hot and ass sweat. But I had, <laughs> I had this, um, I had this partner who I totally fell apart in front of him and we'd been dating for like a month. And sometimes this manifests as these really insane migraines, you know, and I started freaking out because I was falling apart and I didn't want him to think this and that. And I, my conversation was all over the place and then I'm crying and then I'm shaking and, and he's like, just put your head in my lap. We'll just sit here. And I was like, I just, I, I feel crazy. And he's like, well, it makes me a little uncomfortable that you think you're crazy. And it's totally reasonable what's happening right now. Blew my mind that he said that. Blew my fucking mind. Not one person in my life had ever said, that's fine. Just fucking cry. Who cares? You know, he didn't, he didn't. He wasn't controlling about it, but he wasn't allowing me to be self-conscious and self-deprecating and self-hating about it. You know, I think that's also really important to acknowledge, like, this is happening and it's real. So I'm going to hold space for you. Yeah. And just not going to try to change it. Right. He's going to let you be. Right. No so, critique. Yeah. There's right. nothing wrong with what you're no. going through. I don't have to solve it. Right. Right. And that that's such a rare human being, you know, so I'm. I'm thankful that I've had so many people come in my life and model that for me so that I can pass that on. Cause I'm not dumb. It clicks. I'm like, Oh my God, this is, this important. feels amazing. This is now it's articulated. Now it's visceral. Now I can pass it on to somebody else. 
And this is one of those ways where you can say, okay, I'm, I'm going to make the world a little bit better for someone who's just as crazy as I am. And I use that term with love, you know, mm-hmm. who's, who's dealing with mental illness. We can call it just like gays can call themselves <laughs> faggot. Yes. We can call ourselves <laughs> crazy. Yes, yes. I will yep. never let anybody shame me for, you know, calling myself crazy. No, me neither. Me neither. And that's another thing I walked away with from the hospital, you know. Was I, I, can, I can be confident about my mental illness. And I talk about it all the time with people. And a lot of that, too, is due to this podcast. You know, when oh. I first heard the mental illness happy hour, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He gets yes. it. <laughs> yes. All the time, yes. I wanted the title of the show to convey the attitude, mm. you know, that, that we can laugh about this. Yeah. It's, yes, it's an ironic title, but not really. Right. <laughs> yeah. Not really. Not really at all. And, I, and all of my best friends, we have we have this. We and 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 the LGBT community, especially gay men, we call it a kiki, right? We sit around and we kiki and we talk shit and mm. we work things out, you know. And sometimes it's what's kiki short for? It's just kiki, k i k i. That's okay. what they call it. We're gonna have a kiki, okay? You know. And I don't. I actually don't know where it comes from, but it's just like gay boy came, vernacular came from elton john bonding with kiki d <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised but a lot of a lot of the like colloquial like gay slang comes from london from the from the what were they called there was a slang called polare that was happening in the in the 60s and stuff in in britain it's like a mix between that and and sort of urban jive from the 70s not so much that but i think it's mm-hmm. also like code there has there's always had to be a lot of code for us you know but uh, you know my friends and i we kiki about mental illness all the time and it's super lovely for me that's awesome yeah is there is there anything else you'd like to uh to touch on i mean i could touch lots of things but i, yeah. I, I think we're good <laughs> good uh, did you want to do uh fears or loves we can do both if there's time yeah i, I wrote down both yeah let's yeah. do it okay I'm going to have to pull it up from my computer. Can I put it on top of this? Is that yep. okay? Yep. All right. These were fun to write. I actually love writing stuff like this because my, uh, how, how I term myself as an artist is a confessional artist, mm-hmm. you know, and this was something I learned from Sylvia Plath, that, that title and reading her work. I was like, yes, all day to that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, these, this kind of thing is like, I have to dig kind of deep and get all of the like ugliest, nastiest shit out. Oh, and articulate you know, it. I fucking love that. I do. I do. Uh, I'm going to be continuing a list uh, from a listener uh, on the forum who calls himself Lamont Cranston. I keep getting into his his list and never finishing it. Mm. So I think there might have been three separate podcasts where. Uh, but sometimes I'll I'll edit the the fears and loves out. Um, at the end of a podcast, so I don't know which ones. Oh, shut up, Paul. Good God. Good God. That was just the verbal equivalent of a car doing a 360 on a patch of ice. Um, I'll start off with uh, Lamont's fear. Uh, okay. I'm afraid that when the current temporary job I have wraps up that I will be unemployed forever. Oof, I know that one. Um, okay. I'm afraid that every guy I have sex with is just holding his breath until it's over because he's anxious to get away from the embarrassing choice he made to touch me in the first place. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh-uh. Um, 
I'm afraid of having something go horribly wrong that wasn't my fault and being sent to prison. I have that one, oh, too. Oh, me, too. I'm terrified of police. I have this feeling when I bring, uh, when I go to play hockey at night, I wheel my equipment. It's this mm. big bag. Mm. And I always am glad that I have my hockey stick so somebody doesn't think I'm rolling a body out. <laughs> I like that very much. I've never had that experience, but I like it a lot. Okay. um, I'm afraid I've been wrong all of my adult life and all of the protective measures I've made and all of the judgments against people I've leveled have done nothing to protect me from harm, but made me into a frightened, hysterical piece of shit. You are fucking good at this. (laughs) You, uh, you know, ask people to be detailed Mm. in theirs, and you clearly took that (laughs) note to heart, because I love when they're detailed and personal. Yeah. Yeah. And when somebody has a way with words, too. Mm. It uh, makes me very happy. Mm. Um, I'm afraid of having a heart attack or a stroke when I'm all alone, and it will be days before someone finds me, and then it will be too late. Mm. It's amazing how many of us have that one. Mm -hmm. And it's so deep. Yeah, that one is so deep. Even when I've been like super suicidal, and I have that, I'm still like I have that fear of death. Even though I'm like, well, I'll shoot myself in the head, but no strokes for me. You know, uh, it's like we want to control. That's the ultimate yeah. control. Is yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. Uh, I'm afraid people's pity for me will increase exponentially each year that I'm alive. That people are wondering when I will just kill myself because I'm too fucked up. Uh, I'm afraid of driving on a rain-slicked road late at night, hitting the brakes too quick, and have my car go hurtling off a cliff. Mm. I'm afraid of my mind, that I will lose the ability to discern between internal mind realities and external world realities, and I won't be able to tuck in my impulses and thoughts, and I will melt down into a cartoon flood of gibberish and swinging fists, (laughs) pushing a shopping cart full of mementos for my lack of resources, and eventually die alone under a bridge somewhere with people picking through my few possessions that I'd long lost any connection to anyhow. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Uh, and I love how short this next one is after after that. I'm afraid of being shot from behind. Ooh. That one does that does kind of give me chills. Ooh. Yeah, me too. I, I don't want to be shot at any angle, but yeah, shot mm. from behind especially seems it's, bad. Being shot at sucks. I just want to put that out there. It sucks. Have you been shot at? Yeah, yeah. What was the context? It was random. It was random. I was walking down the street and I heard this loud bang and I thought it was like a M80 or something. And then I heard this noise by my head and it was like a bing and there was a no parking sign that had a hole in it that had like this little puff of smoke went up from it um and also i got held up in oakland once and running and i i I did the like classic horror movie thing where i fell when i'm running from the assailant (laughs) you know anyway he tackled me and the whole thing was over and i peed my pants and felt really embarrassed about it but i have i definitely have that being shot from behind fear that sucks wow um I'm afraid that I will go through the rest of my life always on the cusp of doing or completing something that will change my life for the better, unable to complete because of my mental illness, and that will cause people I love to reject me one by one because they don't want to take care of me when I'm 50 and have nothing. Wow. Uh, I'm afraid of going to a doctor's appointment and being told to get my affairs in order. Mm. I'm afraid that I will never be able to effectively outsmart or dismantle the conditioning of the white patriarchy in my head that privileges me, that I will not have the strength to use my privilege consciously to educate other white people, and that I will die with the regret and or knowledge that I am weak, cowardly, and a person who took advantage of white privilege while claiming that I wasn't a racist. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I love how that is so eloquent and also brutal towards yourself. Yeah. 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 But it's good that you're conscious of that, that oh, har- harshness towards, uh, towards yourself. Mm. Uh, I'm afraid of making the wrong decision for a loved one when it comes to sustaining their life or ending it. <sighs> He's going deep. Yeah, that is deep. I'm afraid that I will never know the feeling of safety, even if it's present because of my projections and cautious approach through hypervigilance. I will let every shitty thing that ever happened to me, even if it's an unpleasant interaction with a stranger, dictate the direction of my life every minute of every day. I'm afraid of uh, losing my hearing and I won't be able to hear any of the albums and music in my collection. (laughs) (laughs) Been there all the time. Um, Let's see. I'm afraid to live without constant pain, internal conflict, and deep depression because life might seem vapid without them. I've lived my life thinking that happiness is for stupid white people who don't think about the ugly world around them. I'm afraid of losing my vision and all the DVDs that I haven't watched yet uh, will be a huge waste. Hmm. I have that, but it's for laser discs. <laughs> really? No. Yeah, okay. I, I, I knew a person who had those, so I thought that's interesting. Um I'm afraid of meeting new people because I will always let them down. Even though I view myself as warm and engaging, I fear that people see this as fake. When the reality is I'm just so scared to death for them to know how deeply I'm affected by kindness, so I put up a wall and throw mixed signals. When I know I'm about to say something that reveals any emotional experience or weakness, I often shut myself down and walk away because I'm certain that they will ridicule me for it. Give me, give me one more and then we'll go to the loves. Um, let's see... I'm afraid that I will never have the ability to let something feel good for more than an hour before spiraling into depression because that good thing will end and probably very painfully. I I relate to that one. It's Mm. when I find something that takes me out of myself or feels good, I cling to it like a badger with a piece of meat. Do not try to take it away from me. Mm. I I kind of do the opposite. I kind of do the opposite where I feel like, For example, when I was saying I'm on a date and I'm like face hot and ass sweat, you know, Mm -hmm. I have this thing where what's going through my mind is I really like this person, but I kind of want to reject them because this is no matter what this is going to end and it's going to be more painful for me to end than it's going to feel good because I don't know. I don't know what safety feels like. And in the ideal relationship, that's what it is. It's safe space. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm terrified of it because I don't know what it is or what like the stakes are so high. I don't even want to bother. And vulnerability has to have risk. Otherwise, it wouldn't be vulnerability. Right. Right. And that's the point I am now with my therapies. I just I have to get beyond that and accept affection. Yeah. There yeah. is a, a component of faith to vulnerability that yeah. I think it would be otherwise impossible if there wasn't a component in faith. And I think for Mm. people that have been abused, that's what makes it so scary to be vulnerable is because you have to believe it's possible this might work out, that this might feel good, and that I might deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lamont's loves. Um, Turning on the TV and unexpectedly finding a show or movie that's one of my favorites and I haven't seen in a long time. Yes. I love the feeling after performing or reading really vulnerable, painful pieces of having been witnessed and supported, cried with and held. Uh, Sitting in the backyard at night in the summer with a cigar and a drink, looking up at the sky and just thinking. Hmm. I like that. Me too. I love the feeling of happiness and awe of learning a new language, of engaging a childhood wonder and joy upon discovering a new world as a result. Having my fiance come up and scratch my back and not having to ask her to do it. That's Hmm. a beautiful one. Hmm. 
Uh, I love the feeling of lightness after a deep cry. Oh, me too. Mm. It's so clean. Yes. Um, and I love clearing my nose out after it. <laughs> just that awesome blow, just blowing of the nose. It's yeah. so. It's it's almost like it was like a little like a little accomplishment like look yeah. at all that yeah. it's productive yes um i love how short this one is corn chips <laughs> um i love holding hands when a relationship is new that's a great one hmm. uh going to bed at night and knowing that you've accomplished something during that day i love hanging out with kids and asking them questions as it reconnects me to my child mind and refreshes me all day that's great Going back to sleep early in the morning and sleeping soundly after having to get up and go to the bathroom. Oh, yes. I definitely mm. love that one. I actually set my alarm usually about an hour and a half earlier than I need to wake up. That way mm. I get to have the, oh, I don't have to wake up yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I love the process of being tattooed and pierced, the pride of choosing pain and the confidence that the process gives me and the art I get to keep as a result. So the pain is a part of the enjoyment? Absolutely. Yeah. I was a cutter as a teenager. And the the thing that stopped me from that was getting pierced and tattooed. You know, I have probably 35% of my body tattooed. Oh, you know? really? Yeah. I have, I have a lot of massive tattoos. Um, and for me, uh, sitting for four or five hours, you know, having blood shoveled out of me, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like, there's something to it that's beyond the endorphins. A, it's that I'm choosing pain. I'm choosing to sit through it. Um, I have great affection for art, obviously, as an artist. So I get to do this healing thing that I'm choosing to heal. Mm. You know, it's yeah. not like someone perpetrating something on you and then being like, oh, fuck, now I have to go through these years of healing. It's like I get to do this mini trauma that I've chosen. You know, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, waking up to a strong rain early in the morning, realizing that you have a day off and going back to sleep. Mm. I like that. Hello, Portland. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I love witnessing my religion in action. When people come together and everyone is singing and dancing, wishing each other well, and praying so hard to make the world a better place. Uh, what is there? Do you have a word for your religion? Yeah. Um, it's uh, Santeria. Mm -hmm. Lukumi. It's an Afro-Cuban religion. Um, uh, people who don't know anything about it generally have a really negative opinion. I think it's like it. voodoo or... Well, I mean, it's in that family, right? Yeah. But it's not... Um, the main purpose of it actually is to develop good character as a person and sure. learn how to be in the world as you are. There, are. there are no precepts like every person has to behave this way. It's a very individual. Mm -hmm. Things that are good for you aren't going to be good for me. And that's just part of being on the world. That's just diversity in action, you know? So a, a big part of that religion for me is when, when we all come together for ceremonies, a lot of it is um, dancing and devotional music, which mm. is entrancing, mm -hmm. you know, but it's all about the basic goodness of human beings. It's beautiful. Super beautiful. Yeah. Um, sitting in my darkened home office late at night and working on something creative. Hmm. I love sitting at the top of a mountain or trail and I can see hundreds of miles of ocean and sky in front of me and I feel the best kind of insignificance that connects me to every living thing on the planet. Oh, that's beautifully put. Uh, let's do one more each. Okay. Um, that neat feeling I get in my stomach and throat after laughing for a while. Oh, I love that when my stomach and my face hurt. 
Yes, me too. I love it when my face hurts. That's how I'm, I've been hanging out with this guy. We're becoming really good friends. And every single time we hang out, my abs are sore, my face hurts, you know, and I go home and I sleep super well because he's made me laugh so hard. You know, he's great. Um, this is kind of corny, but I don't really give a shit. I love the look on someone's face when I've cooked for them. That's a great one. Mm. That's a, it's such a um, beautifully simple thing to do. Yeah. And there's no misinterpreting nope. usually, you nope. know, the love of somebody taking the time to cook a nice meal yeah. for you. Yeah, which I love. I love to cook for people, but especially when it's like a special meal, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, I just want to thank you, Nandi, for, for coming. I'm glad you contacted me. me and um, thank you for being so open and honest and sharing your, your life with us. Yeah. Well, thanks for being open to having me here. It feels really nice. I really enjoyed that. I hope you guys did too. Um, I just love getting to hear people's stories. It's like, um, this is just such a great, great gig. And I'm so grateful for the, the support of you guys. And speaking of support, this is the episode of Cheesy Segways. Um, if you care to support the show, there's a couple of different ways that you can do it. Uh, you can go to the website, mentalpod.com. That's also the Twitter name you can follow me at, um, mentalpod. Uh, you can go to the website. You can make a one-time donation or a um, recurring uh, monthly donation via PayPal. Uh, it's super easy to do. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month, and uh, you don't have to do anything once you sign up unless you decide uh, you're sick of my bullshit and you want to cancel or uh, your credit card expires. And um, it means the world to me, those of you that uh, that are monthly donors or donate in any kind of way, it, um, it helps helps to keep this podcast uh, going and I, I greatly appreciate it you can also um, help by uh, using our Amazon search portal next time you're going to buy something at Amazon enter through the search portal uh, on our homepage it's right hand side about halfway down not to be confused with the search box we have for our website itself um, like if you want to find an episode about bipolar or borderline personality disorder um, search in that and then any blogs or um, episodes that have that in the description will come up as well. Because I do get emails from people that are like, which episodes uh, deal with this or that? And um, it's much easier to go uh, do a search um, for that in that box than for me to try to recall um, what was touched on in each and every episode. You know why? Because when my guests are done recording, they're dead to me. Probably should have mentioned that uh, in the first episode. But yeah, that's um, that's how I cope. Um what else did I want? Oh, you can also support the show by going to iTunes, giving us a good, uh, good review and uh, and a good rating that boosts our uh, our ranking and brings more people to the show. And you can also um, go fuck yourself, Paul. Why would you say that? Why would you say that? The nice people that have stuck around for this long, and you attack them like that. I don't understand it. Well, there's a lot of things about me you don't understand. Oh my God, my personality is splitting in two right on the air. Who knew? Actually in three because the third part of me is judging the shit out of this. Let's get to an email. Um, before we get to that, actually, I just wanted to say the um, I had a hard time kind of uh, coming up with surveys, not dark ones. There's plenty of that, but... Um, the happy moments and the awful some moments surveys, which, as you know, are my two favorites to read, 
they were pretty thin uh, this week. And um, if you're out there and you have happy moments, or and especially sublimely happy moments, those are my favorites, or an awful moment, please go take that survey and fill it out because it really helps kind of break up um, the darkness of the uh, of the other surveys. So um, just giving you a heads up, this one's going to be chocolatey. This uh, series of uh, of surveys, um, not as chocolatey as as last last week, but. Um, this is an, actually an email I got from uh, a wonderful young woman who, I sound like I'm 85, who I met when we did a group recording at uh, Lewis and Clark University uh, near Portland. Um, and we still exchange emails every once in a while. Uh, and she sent me this awesome email. Um, she writes, I was listening to this week's episode and thought I might send along my ideas about telltale signs for emotionally abusive relationships. By the way, I've posted this on the website as, as well. Uh, she writes, having just escaped one myself, I can tell you there are three questions for which I have developed some answers. I'm not a doctor, but when I have too much to drink and start giving sage advice, my friends call me the great white Oprah. Number one, is my relationship abusive or unhealthy? Firstly, if you're asking this question, that's a clue. If someone asks you if you feel safe in your relationship and you can't immediately, uninhibitedly say yes, that's a problem. An abusive partner will separate you, if not isolate you completely from your family or friends. There could possibly be an ultimatum, verbalized or otherwise, a threat about what might happen if you decide to hang out with anyone else. The more time you spend with friends and family, the less power your abuser has, so they don't want that. An abusive partner will invalidate your feelings or reactions in order to maintain, maintain control. Phrases to look out for include, but are not limited to, are you still upset about that? Why can't you just let it go? And we were having such a good time. Don't ruin the good times we have. It should also be stated that the best abusers will not be all bad. Otherwise, they'd have to get new victims more quickly. My abuser cooked for me took care of me when I was sick, drove me to surgeries, held my hand at the dentist. These positive experiences make question number two harder to handle. Question number two, if I've concluded that my relationship is unhealthy, what do I do now? DTMFA, dump the motherfucker already. It sounds difficult, but you're never going to want to do it. They're never going to make it easy, and this relationship will never get any better. It's a piece of duct tape covering a patch of skin. Rip it off now or later, but it'll hurt just the same. And the longer you wait, the longer you deprive your skin of oxygen. They will try to make it harder for you to dump them, using any tactic they can to make you stay. Mostly, they will try to make you feel bad for leaving. Shake it off. Stand your ground. Don't let the Jedi mind tricks work on you. You will only feel worse if you try to break up and they win. How do I recover after an emotionally abu abusive... Oh, question number three. Uh, how do I recover after an emotionally abusive relationship and a nasty breakup? Get all the bad out and fast. Rebound with stupid people. Eat, drink things you're not supposed to. Annoy your friends with the horror stories of your crazy ex. Wear condoms, nurse your hangovers, and binge watch a new favorite TV show. Something you and your ex didn't watch together. Forgive yourself. Beating yourself up for putting up with that shit, waiting that long to leave, etc. won't help. So say you're sorry. Say you're sorry to yourself for letting that go on, for letting yourself get that badly hurt. Take care of yourself. Carry a water bottle, three square meals and a snack, wash your face before you go to bed, 
things like that. It matters a lot more than you think. Thank you so much for that, Maddie. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, filled out by um, a new listener. And uh, this, I just want to read an excerpt from these. A lot of these surveys I'm going to read just excerpts from. Because um, it's always a struggle to, to try to... I swear to God, if, if I didn't think I would bore the living shit out of you guys, I would read practically every survey that was, that was filled out. Um, but then I would probably have no voice and uh, it would dilute the show. She calls herself hap- hopelessly lonely. And it just, I don't know. Um, she's a new listener and she's, she says, um, want, uh, she found us from uh, having Hamda on the show uh, because she was an avid listener to Keith and the girl. And she writes, one episode and I was hooked. I started that day at episode one and have continued with every episode ever since. Um, I work at night, so I listen to your show back to back all night for over a week now, and I'm currently on episode 96. That is so incredibly flattering. Anyway, um, she writes, I think about suicide often and find myself wishing for an accident or injury to happen to myself. Man, do I, I, I know that I know that feeling. I've shared it on the podcast before, but when I used to fly, I used to hope that the plane would go down so I didn't have to make that, that decision myself, but... Um, I just want you to know that you're you're not alone in that, and um, the rest of the stuff um, on your survey. I just wanna I just wanna give you a big hug, and remind you that you're not alone. This is uh, same survey filled out by a guy named Mac, and I just want to read his deepest darkest thoughts. Um, he writes, "I sometimes think about killing people, not people I hate, though. Um, I just you, oh, and he is um, bisexual, and he's 25 years old, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment." Um, and some stuff happened, but he doesn't know if it counts as, uh, as sexual abuse. Um, I wonder if I should read that or not. I've read it already, but I'm just wondering if I should read that to you guys. Um, no, just know that there was, that there was some stuff that, that, um, was possibly, possibly not. Um. He writes, I sometimes think about killing people, not people I hate, though I used to think of killing my parents. I just like planning out how to do the act, how to hide evidence, etc. It's like a game. Just like stealing is just a game for me. It's satisfying to plan and successfully execute. I had violent thoughts all the time, though I am not a violent person, and I know this. I've been told it can be common with OCD. I don't like sharing because people will think I'm crazy, but I don't feel bad about them because I know I'm not a murderer or even a psychopath. Uh, It's just my brain being weird that makes me think about pushing people into cars when I pass them and stuff like that. It's fucked up and crazy, but at least I can laugh about them because I know that they are so far away from my conscious self that they just seem bizarre. Things that I am actually ashamed of is sexual fantasies where I am a woman having sex with other women. The sex is completely casual and loving. Sometimes it isn't even sex. It's just being naked, being seen as beautiful, and being held. Fantasizing about being a woman helps me have fantasies that are more emotional where I feel loved. Thank you so much for that. That um, that was beautiful. And um, I hope, I I mean, you don't, you you don't judge yourself for the, you know, the violent thoughts. So, you know, I'd encourage you to not judge yourself for the, the tender, the tender thoughts, the beautiful, you know, that's, 
that's who you are. Embrace it. Love it. You know, we're we're given one one body and one soul to to go through uh, go through life with, man. Well, why not make friends with it? You know, why why hate ourselves? Says the most self hating person on the planet, <laughs> atop his pompous perch, looking through his monocle, wondering where Daniel Day Lewis went. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself uh, Aza, A-Z-A. She is in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, and describes herself as asexual. I just want to read a couple excerpts. Deepest, darkest thoughts, that I've lived a complete lie my entire life. No one knows the real me. I tell my parents I have a boyfriend. I do not. uh, I do not. I tell friends and work people I have a boyfriend. I do not. I spend my time alone and isolated because I am deeply ashamed of my body, my thoughts, my life. Deepest, darkest secrets. I lie every single day of my life to try to fit in and be normal. I isolate myself, and when I am forced to be around people, I make up lies so I look normal. 33, not married, no kids, but dating someone. Love life, uh, love, life love my job, enjoy shopping and being with friends. None of that is true. I'm severely depressed. I make up extravagant lies to cover up the real life I live. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I've been lying to you for years. I'm not the person you think I am. And I want to say that to everyone in my life. Uh, that breaks my heart. And um, I hope you can you can get honest with somebody. You know, maybe try joining the forum and get honest with some people there. And, you know, think of that as kind of, you know, um, a, a way to ease into um, letting this this stuff out that you've been holding in for so long. Um, forum is so not judgmental. It's it's so, at least my experience in it has just been really, um, and what I view other people, the experiences them having on the forum, and maybe a, um, a support group um, of of some sort or a therapist. But. Um, we are all so much more lovable than we think we are. It's fucking amazing. Um, also, uh, from the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Lee. Um, he is bisexual in his 20s, and he only filled out part of the survey. I'm just going to read a couple of, couple of things. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I can't put a physical memory to the moment in time that comes to mind, but I have a fog of a memory where I'm laying on a bed with an older man, feeling uncomfortable and cold, not sure what to make of this memory slash feeling. Get a lot of people filling that out um, in this survey. A lot of people um, have those hazy, blurry memories. And, um, you know, my thought is it doesn't hurt to to talk to somebody about it. and to talk about the feelings, because that—that's what's important, you know—is—is is the feelings that are left in in the wake of this thing that may be real or imagined. Um, but uh, you know, my experience is is more often than not, it's it's something that actually happened, not something that's imagined. Um, darkest thoughts that I get a kick out of people having difficulty in their lives. Darkest secrets I live. In a constant lie, the idea of someone knowing who I really am is frightening. I would love to see you, Lee, um, correspond with AZA. Um, that would—I just think that would be cool for you guys to. 
I don't know, compare notes and feel less alone. So if you guys want to email me, I can put you in touch with each other. But, you know, these these surveys are filled out anonymously, so I don't ever, and I don't even get IP addresses because I want people to be able to share everything. Um, so if you want to email me, um, I can put you in, in touch with each other or um, go to the forum and introduce yourselves. All right. Uh, this is from the Shame and Secret Survey. And uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself anonymous. She's straight in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. And um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? She hasn't, but she qualifies. When I was 13, I found a folder full of child porn in one of the desk drawers of our family computer. I also found copious amounts of child and adult porn on the family computer. Um, I showed my 12-year-old sister and we showed my mom. She confronted my dad and he went ballistic. I love how he went ballistic, you know. <laughs> I love how narcissists will turn it on other people. Uh, he threw the computer tower, threatened to throw it in a lake and left the house. He came back two days later and we, quote, forgot about it. Uh, when I was 15, I suffered a crippling depression and spent what would have been my freshman year of high school on the couch, which I never left. How could you not, you know, knowing that you're living... With uh, with that is just hold on one second. Knowing that you're living with that is um, oh, that's I can't imagine how hard how hard that would be. Um, any positive experiences uh, with your abuser? I'm 28 now. My dad quit drinking cold turkey when I was a young teen. For a long time, I resented and hated him. I don't hate him. I do forgive, but will never forget. My dad has financially supported me and paid a significant amount for my college tuition. He's got lung cancer for the second time. I'm very sad about that because I used to wish he'd get cancer for treating me like shit. I don't know how to deal. I live with my parents. I'm close to my mom, but my dad is pretty much a live-in roommate. That's how distant we are. Um, I want to encourage you to, I'm sure you're trying anyway, but to uh, get out get out of that house and and on your own that that'll that'll definitely help and then sexual fantasy is most powerful to you i'd love to fuck andy cohen the big wig of bravo i fantasize about gay men it turns me on i'd love to be married to a gay man and have a child with him we could do our own thing open relationship occasional three-way with another guy i think i'm so attracted to gay men because straight men intimidate me i was bullied by boys from elementary to high school i feel quote safe to be with someone who wouldn't love me sexually, but platonically. Well, I'm sure everyone who heard that survey is thinking, you know, how could you not be freaked out by straight guys with your dad, you know, as your primary male role model? Um, sending you a hug. This, uh, I wanted to read an excerpt from this one. It's from the Shame and Secret Survey because I think it highlights so well how complex human beings can be, uh, especially parents, and how hard it can be to reconcile that complex, the complexity of, of, of a parent. Um, this is filled out by Gracie Boo, and she is straight in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, Gracie Boo, I read your survey. It's totally chaotic. It's not pretty dysfunctional. Um, she was the uh, victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Um, 
and she was emotionally abused, raised by a narcissistic mother, married four times, all to alcoholic abusive men. She's talking about her mom. She and her fourth husband sat me, my brother, and our stepbrother down and told us we were making it too hard on them to stay married. They were going to get a divorce. It was our fault. By the way, my mom did that too when she and my dad broke up in the in the late 80s or separated. I still have the letter where she blamed it on my brother and I. Uh, they said they planned on getting back together when my brother and I graduated high school and were no longer in the picture to F up their relationship. My first year in college, they reconciled. It lasted nine months. This time, my mom blamed his kid, my stepbrother, for ruining everything. This guy used to tell me I would be raped every night in a women's prison if I didn't get my act together in school. He's dead now. Her third husband was allegedly some kind of assassin for the military. She says we were all under constant she says we were all under constant surveillance and at any moment he might get the word to kill us. Not only did she stay with him, but she told me all about it when I was 13. She doesn't understand why I get upset about her staying with him after he confesses that he may need, may need to kill her and her children. She used to wake us up in the middle of the night when he got drunk and violent. We would climb out the window and wait for her by the car. And it goes on and on uh, about her and him, but... Um, any positive experiences with your abuser? My mom is an interesting, intelligent lady. She and I have the same sense of humor about a lot of things, the same religious, spiritual philosophies, and similar stances on politics and current events. We can talk in depth about many subjects, but when it comes to anything emotional, is like talking to a five-year-old. She takes no responsibility for herself or her actions. She is 70 now. I talk to her once or twice a month, but I honestly will be relieved when she's gone. I related to that so much. Um, darkest thoughts. All of my sexual fantasies are pretty vanilla. I've never really been able to explore sexuality with a lover that I felt comfortable with. I'm 36 and I have gone without sex for uh, two years at a time. The emotional responsibility turns me off. I get more satisfaction from doing it myself. Okay, I guess I think about strangling a couple of exes, but that's it for deep and dark. The truth is, I wish I were gay sometimes, but I've eaten just enough pussy to know that I'm straight. I'm not talking about a couple a couple of drunken, awkward slurps. I'm talking about at least three different ladies chowing down and being chowed down upon. Not gay, not even a little bit. Which got me thinking that maybe uh, somebody should create a... Uh, a like a bi-curious buffet where you could go and chow down and uh, and then at the end of it you would know whether or not you were you were gay and uh, they could direct you do you would you like to to go to the the <laughs> bailing on this bit <laughs> it seemed like it was going to be so great in my head oh let's see do I want to read this one? Nah, I kind of don't feel like reading this one. I kind of don't feel like reading it. More creepy shit that grandparents did. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Alex. And um, this one really touched me. She is... Um, Straight, she's 18, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I just started university when my parents or friends or teachers from high school or my lecturers 
and classmates from uni talk to me about the future. They tell me their dreams and their goals. To join Doctors Without Borders, to move to New York, be a musician, etc. All of these great things. I tell them some bullshit lie. But really, all I want is to not have a future. All I want is to die. I want to kill myself. I can't see a future for myself. I feel so alone and broken when they talk about their dreams because I can't. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my family that I don't know how you could hurt a little girl like that. And if you hated me so much, why do you love me now? I'm so confused. I feel like I can't trust anyone in my life because they could switch between the two extremes at any moment. This is what you did to me. The physical injuries are okay. I can deal with that, but I can't deal with not being able to trust or accept accept someone's love because I keep thinking they'll revert to hurting me at any second. You tell me you love me, then you hit me. Uh, then you show me affection, then you beat the shit out of me. I don't understand. I'd also like to tell my friends, and I'm sorry for being so distant sometimes, I just don't know how you could love me, but I'm glad you do, and I love all of you, and will try my hardest to keep going, because if you see a future with me, then I might be able to see one for myself. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that at least one person in my family would have gone up to me when I was a kid after one of my beatings and hugged me, like Paul's thing with the girl in the playground. I wish someone would hug me now. I just wish for hugs for me, for everyone who needs it. Ha ha, I sound like a care bear. Oh, you sound so lovable, Alex. And I think every person listening to this right now just wants to give you a hug. And uh, hmm. talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. Let that pain out. Because you sound like you got a really, really beautiful um, soul that's just kind of afraid to come out. And man, do I know that feeling of not wanting to live. I think probably 90% of the listeners do. So just know you're not alone in that. Um, I just wanted to read this one excerpt uh, from this. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey because I just found it interesting. Um, filled out by Alice. And... Uh, She's straight in her 20s and deepest, darkest thoughts. She writes, I have a great relationship with my dad and we're close. No inappropriate behavior towards me at all. Uh, there have been times that we've talked that I felt turned on. Just having an interesting conversation. That makes me feel weird and ashamed, but I know it's probably just crossed wires. And uh, I want to high five you for not judging yourself for that. Uh, this is from the Happy Moment Survey and that may not be I, this would probably be more an awfulsome, an awfulsome moment, but not humorous. Um, but I felt compelled to read it because it's just, it just um, is fucking compelling. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Stuck. He's in his thirties, and um, he writes, um, "It was over a year since I had learned that my father had been molesting my ten-year-old daughter for over four years." I had struggled through so much during that time, the pain of my daughter trying to ensure her safety now and her happiness in the future, the struggle of trying to deal with my own feelings while also trying to comfort my broken wife, the pain of so many of my family members continuing to support my father even though there was photographic and video evidence of the monstrous side of him. After all of this time and with overwhelming evidence against him, my uh, 
my father finally admitted guilt to the 25 counts against him. I sat in front of the courtroom and read my impact statement to let him know, and primarily to let the judge know, how his horrific crimes affected so many of us. I didn't want to expose my pain to so many people, but I was afraid he would get the minimum sentence and be out of jail in 10 years. I wanted to do anything I could to prevent my daughter from fearing his release. I glared at the monster while I told about my heroic daughter finally telling us about the years of molestation in order to protect her young brother from enduring the same abuse. I talked about the pain of my wife and I listening to my daughter finally share the details of the years of abuse to us, allowing my daughter to finally release the secrets while my wife and I tried to suppress our own shock and sadness in order to support her and make her feel safe and comfortable in talking to us about it. I told the courtroom about me breaking down and promising my wife that I had none of that monster in me, that I never would hurt a child in those ways. I was so scared she would think that I could do those things. The whole time that I spoke, I stared at that monster, and not once did the coward look up. After the judge returned to sentence my father, he talked about my impact statement. He said that in his 30 years of practicing law, he had never thought about the impact of many of the things I had discussed, how far-reaching a crime like this could be. I had touched this judge who admitted that he hears cases like this every week and stated that typically pedophiles in the state only receive 10 to 15 years. Because of my impact statement and the things that I was able to expose of myself and share with the judge, I had helped him to realize how much more devastating and far-reaching crimes against children can be. Because of me, my father was sentenced to life in prison. Because of me, he will die there. Because of me, my daughter can feel forever safe that he can never hurt her again. Of everything I've done in my life, that will always be my greatest accomplishment. Never in my life have I ever felt like I contributed more to anything. That was the happiest day of my life. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is that is one of the heaviest things I, I, I have ever I have ever read. Um, and I'm including uh, the comic book Archie. This is I couldn't I couldn't leave that there because it felt too sincere and then I felt like you guys are going to think I'm taking myself too seriously and uh, and then you're going to hate me and you're going to leave the show and I'm going to die alone. This is from <laughs> this is our last one and this is from the Awfulsome Moments survey and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Chris from the Boondocks of Virginia. And he writes, unfortunately for myself and my anus, I had to undergo a humiliating surgery called a sphincterectomy. No, I'm not making any of this up. I was experiencing rectal bleeding. My anal sphincter is simply too tight. So anyway, I'm in stirrups in a surgical room, hating my existence, preparing for a doctor to lay into my throbbing rosebud with a scalpel when one of the nurses says to me, hey, aren't you Chris blank? I look at her and I recognize her as this chick that used to ride the school bus with me years earlier when we were kids. I do a quick mental checklist of my situation, me being prepared for asshole surgery, my small scared wiener exposed, the fact that she was preparing to shave the taint area around my frightened rosebud. After contemplating the situation for three quarters of a nanosecond, I say, no, I'm Tim. You see, I have a twin brother, so I thought throwing him under the asshole surgery bus was a logical thing to do. She says, while starting to shave me, oh, okay, your chart says otherwise. 
Oh, sweet mother of God, that made me laugh. That made me laugh. Well, thank you so much for uh, for listening and supporting the show. And I hope if you're out there and you're... Uh... Oh, I also wanted to mention, if you live in Northern California, I have been hired to speak at a uh, mental... Uh... <laughs> Metal Circus, uh, speak at a college in uh, Lassen County on uh, in late March. I forget what the exact date is. Maybe I should have written that down. But um, I'll mention it uh, on next week's episode. And I'm pretty sure it's open to the public. And it's going to be on a, uh, I don't know what the day is. Why did I bring it up? What a perfectly awful perfectionist angst moment to end on. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, we're sending you a hug. You're not alone. You're not broken. You just need to ask for help and get out of your comfort zone. You're not alone. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.